What's the problem with Salvador Perez? I'll ask Scott Pianowski about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 18th. It's show number eight of the 2021 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports discussing the Salvador Perez problem, about being selected for the Fantasy Sports Writers Hall of Fame, about outfield values, player signings and trades, and a jumbo-sized set of boons and banes. We'll also have our first Market Watch player news reports of the season. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Freddie Freeman, Matt Olson, Chris Bryant, Nelson Cruz, and other National League news. And Ray Murphy covers the American League, including Matt Chapman, Jesse Winker, Zach Granke, and more American League news. We'll also have our first Baseball HQ commentary of the season. In extra innings, I'll be talking about my own boon and bane for 2022. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We've got a Hall of Famer in the house. we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with the Fantasy Sports Writer Association's newest Hall of Fame inductee, Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you so much, Patrick. It is wonderful to be here after a really long off-season. Uh, looks like we're going to have full season, and it's only going to start a little bit late. Of course, the hot stove has been crammed into you know uh, just a, a really tiny compartment, but I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Let's talk some baseball. And we should say we're talking on Thursday afternoon, and we're only a couple of hours away from uh, the first spring training game of the year. I think Boston's playing Philadelphia, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, anybody who's got access, I think MLB.com is showing it for nothing and uh, and other spring training games. I have the package on my cable. I don't know how many uh, spring training games I'll get, but you can bet I'll be watching them just because I'd like to watch some baseball for sure. Uh, I think this is the most exciting March I've ever remembered on the sports calendar because Given what happened with baseball and the cadence of the season and the hot stove was all, look, we had a bunch of signings before the lockout, right? And then nothing happened, obviously. They finally got the in, the agreement and how stressful that was, but they finally did it. So now baseball is pushing in its second wave of hot stove and signings and trades and all that where we usually wouldn't get it. Plus, we're getting spring training news. Plus, the NFL is in the middle of, of divvying up all their players. Plus, we have the, the March Madness is, is about to tip off. Uh, in about a couple of hours, you know, we're not far away from the Masters. You know, all this stuff usually goes on, but when you throw more baseball transactions into the mix, I feel like every every time I leave my phone for ten minutes, I come back and something has happened. Somebody's on a new team, and it's it's, it's a little bit chaotic, but it's mostly it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty darn fun. It is really darn fun, and uh, a guy like you is perfectly positioned to enjoy it because of your role at uh, Yahoo Sports. Not only baseball, you get to cover pretty much all of the sports, uh, and I guess everything matters to you as a result. Yeah, very grateful. They've had me do a lot of uh, March Madness coverage, and um, I I occasionally dabble in golf and hockey, and and, uh, obviously football and baseball are, are huge fantasy sports, so I'm really 
grateful and fortunate that I would not want to be somebody, nothing wrong with anybody who specializes in a sport. And if you do that, you know, be great at it. You know, baseball HQ is a unbelievable reference for baseball and I wouldn't want it any other way, but I'm glad in my life that I do get to dabble in different things. And um, I don't know, every day is different. Every month is different. And for me, that's kind of the fun part. Not the NBA. Not that's probably the sport I do the least amount of work on is professional basketball. But um, so I just watch that casually as a fan and mostly during the playoffs. Um, I, I do not follow the NBA regular season particularly closely. You know, I'm the same way. Uh, we have a team here that's, it's a really fun team to watch. The Raptors are, uh, they're very aggressive on defense. They, they remind me of a college team in a lot of ways. It's absolutely hustle, hustle, hustle all the time. And they're winning a lot of games. And nobody expected it this year, especially because they were, you know, not a participant in the free agent pool very much. And But they're really good at building a team. And uh, I, I think that's interesting. And before we go on, I have to ask you, who's your final four for the tournament? I have... Um... Well, my big thing, my, my big angle is that I, and I, and I can tie this to fantasy baseball as well. I always want like the second tier closer who could be a first tier closer. Like Kirby Yates one year was like, you know, closer seven, closer eight off the board and ended up having a ton of saves. There was a year where Blake Trinan fit that profile. I think Jordan Romano might be the guy this year. And that's how I've been approaching my pools where I have like Kentucky winning on a sheet. I have Villanova winning on a sheet. I only played two sheets and Kentucky and Villanova are my two champions, even though I think we all know that Gonzaga is the best team and Arizona may be the second best team. So I have a lot of chalk on my sheets, but my champions, I like to go into the second tier and hope I can get a first tier return. So Kentucky and Villanova is where I put my chips down. I saw somebody on Twitter the other day saying he was going to cover the entire field with 150 uh, brackets. And I replied back, I said, you know, I said, I read somewhere that it's kind of like two sextillion possibilities with a 64. Yeah, mathematically impossible unless you have a really big staff. Uh, yeah, so, no kidding, right? Maybe the cheaper way, just just take all the Wildcats. If you took all the Wildcats, I, I know you'd have Villanova and you'd have Kentucky, you'd have Arizona covered. So I don't know if there's yeah. other Wildcats in the field, but that uh, that would be a pretty good start. But the big thing for me is that even though Gonzaga is the best team, they get trampled so much in play that I'm, I'm never going to take a favorite that's that overwhelmingly played in a pool, even though if you said to be gun the head, who's going to win the tournament, I would have to say Gonzaga. I just don't see the value for them if you're in a tournament pool. Yeah, I've seen Gonzaga before in the tournament where they everybody said nobody can beat them, and somehow they always figure out a way to get beat. So uh, I'm not, I'm not a, I like Gonzaga's program, and I like watching them play. Uh, I, I don't follow it that closely, but that center, the center who handles the ball like a guard, yeah, I Drew can't Timmy, think. terrific, and they have the freshman center who's excellent too. Yeah, yeah, they're very cohesive. You know, the thing with basketball to me is I love cohesion. I love teams that share the ball. Um, that Toronto, you mentioned the Raptors earlier, that Raptors team that won a title a few years ago when they had Kawhi Leonard and you know Siakam. I really liked that team because it wasn't, Kawhi Leonard is not a typical star where it's going to be all about him. He's perfectly willing to pass. He's perfectly willing to be a secondary player in certain situations. And that to me is much more exciting than say, okay, here's James Harden and he's going to hold the ball for 20 seconds and nobody's going to see it. And I, that I know James Harden's a really good player and he's kind of broken basketball in a lot of ways. And we've seen, we see this in baseball all the time, right? What is efficient isn't always what's aesthetically pleasing. And, you know, again, James Harden to me is like the problem with the NBA sometimes is that the ball doesn't move. But I love cohesion. I love teams that they don't care who does the scoring and uh, where there's just a balanced approach. You know, I, I think back, this is going to date myself, you know, teams like the 70s Trailblazers, that Walton team that won a championship, love that team. I, I love the 86 Celtics, which was like the best passing team I ever saw 
And even a guy like Michael Jordan, I wasn't a huge Bulls fan, but if you doubled Jordan, he'd kick it in the corner to the wide open guy. You know, it wasn't this hero ball. Oh, I'm double or triple teamed. I got to take the shot anyway. I like it when the ball moves around and really cohesion is my favorite word when it comes to what, what makes basketball interesting and exciting and just you know, pleasing to watch for me. Well, again, you'd like these Raptors then because they toss it around like nobody's business. And, and people wondered after Lowry left whether who was going to take over that role. And Van Vliet stepped up and he makes a lot of threes. But they, they distribute the ball like crazy. They, they move the ball around like crazy. And I think it's because there's no real dominant player on the team. And sometimes that's what you need in a basketball or hockey setting is uh, not so much having one guy who has to have the puck, has to have the ball to be able to deliver what they want him to deliver. And as you said, it may work for, for James Harden and his team that he gets 35 points a night while the rest of the guys are standing around, you know, playing pinochle or, or you know, eating or something like that. So uh, I, I'm with you. I think basketball is best played when there's a lot of ball movement and it's it's not as cut and dried that a guy's going to be able to get in and score. And I think there's uh, more, way more fouls called on drives to the basket, although they seem to have reduced it this year. But I can remember back in the day, I'm, I'm, uh, I remember those, those teams you talked about, especially Portland, because I lived in Vancouver at the time. We saw a lot of their games. And I don't remember guys going to the bucket and getting a tap on the side as they went by, and immediately it's a foul. And that's where um, Harden, in particular, was getting a lot of points just by barreling into people like a you know Jim Brown out there and crashing into people, and they, they always call the foul on the, on the other guy, or more often than not. And I agree with you. It's not that much fun to watch. So uh, I'll take uh, Steph Curry on a after-five-passes kind of situation or, you know, in Toronto, uh, Siakam, after getting uh, seeing the ball move around, every guy touches it before he does, and then, then he drives or, or he takes the three. I think basketball is a beautiful game. And you know what? I know I'm rambling on here, but another way to watch that kind of basketball is to watch women's basketball. It's much more team-oriented in the way that yes. a lot of people like to watch it, and I've started watching it uh, more than I used to for that reason. Yeah, I covered actually a lot of um, high school and, and college basketball on the women's side when I was a newspaper reporter, and it's it's one of those sports that translates a lot better if you're there. The game is obviously played below the rim, and it's you know it's not like they're dunking or anything with, with rare exception, but... They're very skilled, uh, excellent ball handlers, and, and the ball does usually zip around. And um, and we're, we're at a golden age where there's, there's some unbelievable female basketball players, both in the college and pro ranks. So I, it's one of those sports that if you if you've ignored it or kind of you know said, oh well, you know these guys aren't these, these women aren't as talented as the men. You know, it's a different type of game. But I think if you see it in person, but like I think hockey is a sport like that too. That people are casual with hockey, and I say, go to a game and tell me how you feel about then. And nine times out of ten, they'll say, oh my god, it's so much better when you're there. That's kind of how I feel about women's basketball. I don't know if it translates quite as well as it should on TV, but if you go to a game, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. That's actually very entertaining. You know, another game that's like that, and we still haven't talked about baseball, and we're ten minutes in. So yeah, uh, baseball. yeah. No, the the sport that's like that. That going to see it live is a, just a monumental increase in entertainment value is volleyball, like vo high level volleyball. I'm not talking about, you know, guys banging around on a beach in Cozumel. I'm talking about, uh, the Olympic level games. When I lived in Regina, Saskatchewan, and I worked for the paper there, the Canadian national volleyball program was women's volleyball program was headquartered there. So we saw a lot of games 
uh, by touring, you know, teams would come over from Czechoslovakia or Russia or somewhere and they'd do a Canadian tour or a North American tour. And one of the stops was Regina. And I saw quite a few of those games. And boy, oh boy, it's just a fantastic sport to watch live. Sure. Um, you know, it's even great to watch in cinema, right? You watch Top Gun, you get to see the, the great beach volleyball. There's a movie called Point Blank, Point Break about volleyball. The first article I ever wrote for the Province Journal, they had me cover a, a volleyball championship. And all I remember is this one team had this unbelievable player named Tanya Pacheco, but the other team had the better team. And uh, I'm just like, wow, you know, if Pacheco had better, had better um, teammates, they probably won the championship. And I forget exactly what she said. But I asked her something after the match, and she gave me like the, the most frank, honest quote. You know, she's like, I, I went to our huddle and I looked at our teammates, and it, it's like we'd already lost the game, you know, like, even though, you know, there was like four sets still to play or whatever. I, I just remember how great she was and how honest she was after the fact. But again, you know, it, it's been this way at Yahoo, but also my newspaper days, they had me cover everything. You know, they had me cover local golf tournaments. I covered little leagues sometimes, a lot of high school, a lot of college, a lot of minor league took at Red Sox for a couple of years. I was in the press box the day the Red Sox traded Larry Anderson. I traded Jeff Bagwell, I'm sorry, for Larry Anderson, which was universally panned the second it happened. Nobody said, oh, he's going to become a you know a Hall of Famer. The problem with Bagwell is that he didn't show power in the minors because the Beehive Stadium, the AA affiliate, had horrible lighting and was like this death valley for hitting. Although I think Bagwell won a batting title there, but he only hit a handful of home runs. Lou Gorman thought that Scott Cooper was the answer. And he didn't know that Larry Anderson was a new look free agent. So he was only getting like five weeks of Larry Anderson. But again, uh, very fortunate, you know, my days in, in the newspaper game, my days in the web game, they bounced me around. And I promise, I promise to your listener, you're all like, hey, I got a draft coming up. I'm not drafting Tanya Pacheco. I'm not, I'm not drafting Mo Vaughn. I need somebody today. So uh, I guess we can get into some baseball talk. How many drafts have you played so far this year? And uh, how many more do you have to draft before opening day? Uh, just a couple, uh, the TGFBI, uh, shout out to, to Justin Mason, who's uh, terrific. And we did the labor mix draft about maybe three or four weeks ago. And you know, that's Steve Gardner's baby, uh, great friend of mine. And um, so that's the two in the bank, uh, labor mixed auction. I'm going to you know give out all my secrets today, but that's coming on the weekend. Uh, my hometown chumps for draft, shout out to all those guys, uh, great bunch of guys. We'll be drafting in about a week. I'll probably have seven or eight teams this year, depending. I, I may jump in an NFBC league at the end. We'll see. Um, and obviously at Yahoo, there's always opportunities to play in leagues. We have a great platform over there. I hope you check it out. So I'll try to keep it under 10. Um, probably seven or eight is the sweet spot for me. Across formats or are you pretty much a roto only? I you know, Usually, um, one thing I didn't do this year is I think best ball is the, I always say this for football season, but it's true for baseball. I love best ball drafts because you get the fun of drafting. You get the opportunity to learn about the draft pool, but you don't get all the extra work of the fab and the transactions and everything. And I think best ball drafts are the perfect way to get acclimated with what's different about this year's draft pool and the position pools and the stat breakup and all that. So normally I would have a draft pool portfolio, I um, best ball portfolio. But this year with the lockout, and, and I thought, look, I thought that most they were going to miss a month of games. I never thought a meaty season was in jeopardy but i just found it hard to get excited about drafting although we did do our tgfbi draft in the middle of a lockout but it just stemmed a little bit of my enthusiasm so i would normally have a best ball profile normally when we talk this time of year i'd say oh, okay i have six or seven teams in the bank this year i just found it a little bit harder to get the enthusiasm up when i had to sweat every day that you know just the 
you do the doom, the doom scrolling, right? Of oh my god, they're what if they cancel half the season? Or oh my god, what if you know some of these owners really don't want an agreement? And um, and and even when they ratified it, right? Did the main group of players all said no? Like the guys who were in the negotiating room, those guys all said no to the agreement. It was the rank and file, um, the, the the other player reps who who got it through, but. Um, that took away a little bit of my enthusiasm this year, but I'm getting it back, man. I'm I'm in a great mood now. It's just um, I'm just maybe not as sharp with the player pools I'd like to be this time of year. You know, I feel exactly the same way. Uh, I did a the Raz Slam. It's a best ball points uh, oh, league that too. You know, I, I apologize to the Raz Ball guys. So I've drafted three times. Yeah, I'm in that too. One of the things I liked about doing it is exactly what you said: is getting a f- taste of the pool and a, an idea of the of the stratifications of pl- of positions, especially. And on my spreadsheet, what I did was I, I gave everybody points based on the projections. That's what we all do. And I stack ranked them. But then I made a column that said, how much better is this guy at his position than the next guy at his position? And what you learn really quickly is that even though it seems logical to wait on pitching because pitching is 400 points max kind of except for Garrett Cole and hitters are 900 points max you're actually in some instances better off taking uh, a pitcher because the next pitcher is so much worse that your the opportunity cost works against you so I thought that was a a pretty interesting thing uh when you've been drafting or when you've been reading about draft Scott have you seen anything that's surprised you have you noticed anything that you think uh, drafters this weekend and the weekends coming up to opening day need to be aware of and and maybe adjust their thinking a little bit yeah th- three things jump out to me I think there's been an increased emphasis on frontline saves on stolen bases and on starting pitching if we went back five or ten years, in drafts and looked at what the habits were, we'd say, Oh my God, look, look at how casual everybody is with the closers and look at how uh, people are just trying to bully hit you know, Todd Zola, right? Bully hitting, figure out the pitching. That was the prevailing strategy and the league we've seen the stolen base just getting more and more phased out, even though the players are stealing bases at a very high percentage, but they, they phase that out. There are certain teams that won't run anymore. In fact, I almost feel like, if you want stolen bases now, you have to go to a bad team because they're the teams that just don't care. Like the Royals are going to be like, oh, look, we're going to stink anyway, but maybe we'll steal 150 bases. That's what we have to sell you. And we have a bunch of players, you know, they, they have like three guys that we're all excited, maybe four guys we're excited about for stolen bases. So I think you go into your draft, and I'm not saying you have to draft a certain way, but you have to have an opinion. Are, are you willing to take Josh Hader in the third round of a draft or, or pay up big money in a, in a salary cap or you know, auction league? You know, what, what is your stance going to be on stolen bases? I heard Jeff Erickson, good friend of, of ours, mutual friend. He was on the um, Greg Ambrosius uh, serious show the other day, and he was explaining he was in a draft. He had taken Vladimir Guerrero in the first round. And you know, Vladimir Guerrero, Jr., wonderful player. He really put it together last year. He got the launch angle figured out. That lineup is loaded. You you know all about this being in Toronto. And they said to him, one of the first things they said to him is, well, okay, well, what about stolen bases? You're not going to get any stolen bases from Vladimir Guerrero. How do you feel about that? And it's like, normally it's like, hey, Vladimir Guerrero, this guy could dominate four categories. He could be the best hitter in the American League. And immediately they put, you know, and I'm not picking on Greg or anything. It's a valid question. You always have to have in the back of your mind, what, what am I going to do with steals? And the, we always try to avoid that, ra- you know, needing to draft a player who's only a steals only guy who won't hit for power who may be at risk of losing his job, may hit 220, something like that. We're always trying to avoid like the Malik Smith type of player. I guess Miles Straw is, is the player who fits that suit this year. So going when you go into your draft, again, this can be in pencil. Every league is different. I, I don't know what 
you know, opportunities, you know, as, as uh, Gene McCaffrey would say, what gifts am I going to get? You know, if you're in a, a draft, you, you always hope a few guys fall. It's like, oh, my God, what's this guy doing here in the fourth round? I can't speak to what your room is like, but I think you need to have an idea of how am I going to attack starting pitching? How am I going to attack saves? And how am I going to attack stolen bases? It doesn't mean you have to be proactive with it, but you got to have an idea. If I'm not going to draft those guys early, I mentioned Jordan Romano um, previously. He's one of my plans because I'm not going to be in on Hader or Liam Hendricks. I think the prices are a little bit too haywire, but you have to have save. You, you, TGFBI, if you want to win the whole thing, you can't punt any categories. So uh, you, those are the three specific things I've noticed about drafts is those things keep getting priced in more and more um, expensively. And I, I think you need to spend a lot of time formulating what you think are possible paths to get those positions or those categories solved. I think there's two ways to approach the stolen base thing. One of them is to get one of the big guys early, but of course, a lot of them go too early before you get your chance to pick. So, you know, adios to Trey Turner and and guys like that, you know, are going to deliver across the board. But I think otherwise, you either have to start looking at raising the the draft positions of guys like Akil Badu and... and, uh, other more Miles Straw, you said that that's a real extreme example. But there are those guys that you figure for twenty five or thirty or thirty five stolen bases, and you're just going to have to bite the bullet. And if they're if the rest of their profile screams fifth round, you might have to say third round or fourth round. And I think that's a that's an interesting thing. Let me piggyback off that uh, briefly. One thing I like to do is try to find what I call latent stolen bases. The idea of who is a player who's fast or has shown proficiency in stolen bases who maybe could see a bump? I look at somebody like Ahmad Rosario, okay, who was a former hot prospect for the Mets. Now he's on the Guardians. It's going to take me a while. I'm going to call them the Indians at some point, and I apologize for that. I still think the Raiders play in Oakland and the Chargers play in San Diego. But Rosario was 13 for 13 in stolen bases last year. Why, and again, a team that may not be a contender, why couldn't he steal 20 bases this year, 25 bases this year? Kyle Tucker, Astros, a very high stolen base percentage last year. Maybe he could bounce up to 20 or 25 stolen bases. I don't think the market makes you pay for that, although Tucker is expensive. Brian Reynolds, one of my favorite players. I, I think I have him on my, my boon list for um, for hitters. Very high sprint speed. He didn't steal a lot of bases last year, but I feel like he could do it. I'm willing to draft Reynolds with the idea that I think maybe he might be getting 12 or 15 stolen bases and the market isn't pricing it in. So I, I always look at these players. Who is a player who, whether it's because of his speed, because of his maybe new lineup position, because of his success rate in the past, could be looking at a stolen base spike where I don't think the market is pricing it in. And then Rosario, Tucker, Tucker's still very expensive. And Reynolds are, are three examples of that. Where I think you might, I think Rosario could easily steal 25 bases if he wanted to. And then there are the guys who are going to get you seven. But if you get enough of them, you can mm-hmm. just compile the stolen bases. Chip away. I love away. the chip away strategy. I love just chipping away. And you know, last year, like Paul Goldschmidt would have done, oh, great. You know, he stole 15 bases, whatever it was. Yeah. So yeah, chip away, chip away. And remember, too, for anybody who's, who's listening and thinking, oh, man, you know, save stressed me out. Stolen bases stressed me out because they're going away. More teams are going committee. We see more saves in Major League Baseball that don't have fantasy relevance because they go to a player who nobody has rostered. There's a side, there's a corollary to this. There's a, another side of this that because we need fewer saves and stolen bases to be competitive, I, I think it's actually 
less stressful to me than than more stressful to me. I think it was actually more stressful to me where it's like, oh my God, I need I need 220 stolen bases or 180 stolen bases, or I'm going to really be in trouble if I don't constantly attack that that stat. I'm, I, I don't know how I'm going to make it up. Now it's more like, okay, I got to figure this out and I got to have a strategy, but I, I may only need 100 stolen bases at the end of the year. I, you know, whatever it is, you have to figure out what your league is and what the number is. But the point is you need fewer of this stat to be competitive than you used to. I actually find that very, I don't know, just it just kind of relaxes me. I, I think there's it's, it's almost like taking a Xanax or something. We don't need saves. Now it's like if you can find a reliever who gets like seven, eight, ten saves to chip in, you know, maybe you draft, I don't know, Chad, maybe Chad Green gets seven saves while Araldus Chapman is invariably hurt. Uh, you know, teasing one of my my bus pitchers. Um, that's great. That's so much more valuable than it might have been like 15 years ago. Right. And as you said, the distribution of saves to more pitchers who aren't in the pool also reduces the um, necessity to compile saves in your fantasy teams. And it, But it also raises the value of, of your Hendrixes and your haters because, you know, if one of them were to get 40 saves, you're kind of halfway to a, to a really good score in the category. So, sure. you know, the, the, it's two sides of everything. We're going to go on to the news in a second, but you referred recently to the Salvador Perez problem, you called it. And I'm presuming that this is all about valuation of catchers, which is a real hot topic in podcasts lately. I don't want to miss the boat. I'm late for the boat, but I don't want to miss it. What's the problem with Salvador? Salvador Perez. Man, there's no problem if you rostered him last year because he had a monster season. I mean, he basically had like a Johnny Bench season. But I don't, I don't like he's gonna go so early in drafts now, and, and justifiably so. But catcher is such a physically demanding position. And I know Perez with, with that one year blowout exception has, has been very durable, but I hate drafting somebody early where he does something on the baseball field every day that is, is puts him at risk to, to wear down. I don't like that lineup particularly. I, again, our, our mutual friend, Gene McCaffrey has talked about how JT real Muto as wonderful of a player. He is never seems to return what his ADP is. I, I just feel like if you never took the number one catcher on the board in any given season, I think you'd mostly be ahead. I, I, I don't like paying for a, pay, a player off a career year. If the career year is priced into his new ADP. And I feel like it is with Perez. So I, between his odometer, between just the fact that it's a position where you, you can easily wear down, I don't like the lineup. I don't like the helium after he just put up the, the year that he did. Um, I'm not going to be. I'm going to try to find. I think you can find a four, kind of like my closer strategy, where can we find good, solid catchers who, who don't you know, cost an arm and a leg? You know, Maybe I'll be in on Christian Vasquez. I think Gary Sanchez could still hit 30 home runs for somebody. I, I don't know how many times he can get traded before the season starts, but I'm going to be looking to play the market, um, the bargain game. I'm going to be a thrift shopper at catcher. I'm, I'm not going to pay for the, for the Perez's or, you know, as I mentioned, real Muto. There's just guys I'm, I'm almost definitely not going to roster this season. Vasquez is a source of stolen bases too, which is a kind of an interesting wrinkle for, for him. And, uh, also, uh, what do you, what do you think of uh, Varsho in Arizona? Who's, catcher eligible going to play the outfield probably but he's a source of speed as well how much extra reach would you go for Dalton Varsho because of the position eligibility plus the generally good offensive profile plus the bags yeah, to me the, the really interesting thing about Varsho and, and I'm, this goes back to me even like to like guys like Brandon Inge who was like ordinary offensive player but when he was a third baseman one year I think it was but had catcher eligibility that is the greatest fantasy hack you can get because then you don't have to worry about all the wear and tear. 
Now you have a player who can play 150, 155 games, no sweat. I'm just not sure if Varsho is good enough to hold down. I, I wish I was more sold on his skill set. And also, just Arizona is a weird team. They're not going to contend. They're, I mean, look, how can they possibly contend? I mean, I, just thinking of that Dodgers lineup now that they have Freddie Freeman, I, I feel like they're going to win as many games as they want to. But Arizona, I, I feel like there's going to be a revolving door in their outfield. Four or five guys might play. I, I would like Varsho. If Varsho was locked into 500-plus at-bats, I'd be looking at him as the top-five catcher. I'm just not sure he's that good. But I'm always curious. If I can find a catcher-eligible player who doesn't play catcher, that's one of the most enjoyable fantasy hacks there is. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, uh, the Hall of Famer. We'll uh, get to that maybe at the start of the second part of the interview. Uh, but in the meantime, there's been a lot of news, as we've referred to. Uh, two first basemen signed on Wednesday. Neither of them was Freddie Freeman, who signed on Thursday with the Dodgers, a six-year deal. So let's start with Freddie Freeman. How does he improve or not improve? What's his fantasy status now that he's on the West Coast? Home. Well, well Freddie Freeman was going to be great anywhere. Um, if Had he stayed in Atlanta, their lineup is loaded, and all the places he was rumored to be speaking with the the Red Sox, the Blue Jays, the Yankees. He obviously goes to the Dodgers. Yeah, I think of what Rudy Gamble or Rasball said that he he thinks that one of his minor mistakes during his initial ranking period was that he should have assumed that a lot of these free agents weren't going to they weren't going to sign with bad teams, they were going to sign with good teams. They were going to go to good spots. So maybe he should have proactively put that in. And Rudy does excellent work by the way. So I'm I'm a big fan of his, but it's a great point that Freeman wasn't going to sign with the Marlins, you know, I mean, probably not. I mean, um, Chris Bryant to Colorado was a surprise. We'll get to that a little bit later, but I just look at this lineup. It's like, it's like who, who hits last, right? AJ Pollock right now, I would guess is probably going to hit ninth in this lineup. If he was on Arizona, he'd probably be the third or fourth hitter. There's a few teams. He might be a middle of the order hitter. If you go on to fan graphs and, uh, and look at their projections, only because I have them handy, because, again, Baseball HQ's projections are as good as anybody's. But um, everybody in this lineup is projected to hit 20-plus home runs, and there's just a bunch of guys with, with OBPs or you have 350 or higher. I, all the Dodgers have to stay away from is injury and boredom. And, and, man, I think they could win as many. Again, maybe it's not practical to try to win 110 games. Maybe the point is just to kind of coast into the playoffs with 102, 103 wins. We know they had a great playoff race last year with the Giants. I don't think anybody thinks the Giants are going to win 170 games again or whatever it was. But I'm just glad I have some some Mookie Betts shares. I This is a lineup where anywhere you can get in, I and mean, we know you want Trey Turner, you probably need the first or second pick in your league. I get it. But I like the buoyancy of a lineup. To me, lineup, when, when people say lineup protection, I think of it as I want the players in front of me. To, it's really simple. I want the players in front of me to get on base. I want the guys in, ba- in back of me to drive me in. And I want the lineup to turn over as much as possible. Also, you, you throw in the, the DH this year. So you know, no more of the pitchers you know, trying to bunt and stri- striking out on three pitches, which is, which is no fun. But I can't imagine how this isn't going to be the best offense in the National League. I It's just unfair. And it also, I know you're not supposed to draft for wins, but you can't tell me like Walker Bueller and, and you know, Julio Urias don't look like great, you know, uh, odds on bets to lead the league in wins because they're going to have seven runs in the bank so many games. Um, I just wish Vince Scully were, were still doing uh, we're still doing Dodger games. I mean, we were so lucky to have him as, as long as we did. And I made a point of really 
always put the Dodgers on like the last four or five years to Scully because I, I knew he wasn't going to be around forever as an announcer and I wish him good health uh, for as long as he can run. But man, this is going to, this is going to be, this is going to be a lot of, we're going to hear Randy Newman playing. I love LA a lot, awful lot because this lineup is unfair. Yeah. And a lot of people will say it is unfair and that's too bad for, for baseball because it f- fuels that, common perception about you know the big teams have all the money and they have all the advantages and they win all the championships even though it's not really true i mean kansas city won a championship you know uh tampa was in the final houston's not a hugely revenue team i don't know it 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 is unfair i'll give you that but let me tell you what let me duck in my problem with really quickly and i'm 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 not Andrew Zimbalist. I'm not, I'm not Joe Sheehan, although I'm going to crib basically off Joe Sheehan's sheet for this. It, Joe Sheehan newsletter, highly recommended. And I know he's a regular guest at this show, so I, I can't wait till that show ultimately runs. But Joe's talked about one of the big problems in baseball is the teams that get the subsidy, that get the revenue sharing and say, okay, that's good. We made a profit. Let's just put that in the bank. Let's just put that in our pocket. Let's not reinvest it to improve our team. So there are some bad teams in baseball that are like, hey, we have we're we're profitable winning 65 games. What what's the point of trying to go out and be competitive for Freddie Freeman? And granted, maybe they couldn't get Freddie Freeman. Maybe Freddie Freeman wouldn't want to play for the Pirates. You look what they're doing with the Reds right now, which is really sad. They were a competitive team a few years ago. I know, uh, you know they're close to your heart. Yeah, you know, at least I always see you wearing a Reds jersey. I always assumed you had some backstory with them, but uh, as Joe has talked about, one of the, and I totally agree. And again, copying off, you know, when you find somebody smart, copy off his page as much as you can. To me, the big problem in baseball is that the revenue sharing in, sets up a situation where you don't have to be competitive to make money. And a lot of teams are like, well, we're just totally fine putting that money in our pockets. That is the bad part of it. Uh, Freddie Freeman had been rumored to be headed for his parents' home and native land little reference to the old Canadian national anthem. Sure. They're from Canada. And there was some talk that he was going to end up in Toronto. And of course the media were overtime trying to figure out oh, what happens to Guerrero. Are they going to put him back at third? Well, it turns out they're not going to put him back at third. Uh, they traded instead for Matt Chapman. And uh, that seems to have been uh, by most accounts, a pretty good trade for the Jays, but I'm more interested in what you think the fantasy effects are especially for Toronto with Matt Chapman leaving the cavernous stadium and into the somewhat tighter confines uh, in Toronto. Chapman was a guy who I waited all of last season for him to snap out of it, and he never snapped out of it. And and I look at his profile, I and mean, look, we know he's a wonderful defender. We know, in fact, the Yankees, I guess, kicked the tires on him maybe being in uh, being acquired as a shortstop. That's how good he is on defense. But I look at his profile last year, where he he had the highest walk rate of his career, and I almost wonder again. This is a McCaffreyism. You know, sometimes you can be patient to a fault. Where you're watching the best pitch you got to hit was that right down the middle first pitch fastball, and that's the one you should have been letting loose on. I wonder if Free if a Freeman. I wonder if Chapman would be better off saying, "Look, I, it's okay if I only walk five percent of the time or seven percent of the time. I don't need to walk thirteen percent of the time, but let's be more aggressive early in the count." That said, he's still on the right side of 30, and the power is going to play anywhere. He's out of a horrible hitter's park. I mean, that if anybody's ever been to a game in Oakland, I mean, the game's like a rumor. I had first row seats the one time I went to an Oakland A's game, and it felt like I was nowhere near the action. It just, it's just crazy. I was really, really close to the bullpens. That, that was fun, but, um, but nowhere close to the action. So I, 
I, I was burned on Chapman last year. You have to have a short memory sometimes. I don't know. I, I, I feel like his career average, and remember, his career average is 243. If he hits 243, that's the that's not that far away from what the median batting average will be in a fantasy league. So he's even if he does hit 220, that's not we have to re establish or recalibrate what that means. If you hit 220 10 years ago in fantasy, that guy was killing you. You can get away with a 220 hitter now if he's doing other things and you have other players who profile well in batting average. He'll get the buoyancy of the Toronto lineup. I'm not going to be at the head of the Matt Chapman bandwagon, but I, I feel like we saw his worst season last year by efficiency. I got to figure like there's a pretty strong rebound. And I think that in the tout mixed auction, I'm, I'm not going in with plans to get any specific player, but I would think I'm probably going to be one of the late bidders on Chapman. I think you and I were sitting next to each other. My first year in tout was in the mixed auction. And I think you were sitting right, you and I were sitting right side by side. Ah, pleasant memory. When, you, when you're talking about a guy like Chapman, the big home run year he had in 2019, he had, I think, 36 home runs. Mm -hmm. right. And I was looking this up the other day and 22% strikeout rate. And I think maybe that's the big difference between 2019 Matt Chapman, who hit 249 that year, mm -hmm. and 210 Matt Chapman, who hit 27 home runs and basically fell into the profile that you worry about or that you're concerned about. So for me, I think the the question is going to be, can he cut the strikeouts down and let's not, and if you're in an OBP league, those walks will play. So uh, it's going to be an interesting thing. I think his home run total has to go up. It's just a so much better park for, for power that it's going to be a benefit. I think uh, Matt Chapman's going to be in a lot of people's radar this year and rightfully so. Totally agree. And again, Toronto's one of those lineups. There's probably like five or six lineups where it's like, yeah, anybody I can get there looks like fun. Although, you know, last year Cave and BGO wasn't a lot of fun, but but most of the Toronto lineup was. And um, I'm I just can't wait to see what uh, what they do because it's they are and, and it's, they're such a fun team too with all the legacy players, right? I mean that uh, you know BGO uh, Guerrero um, Guriel, I mean, just all, all the, up and down the lineup, there's, there's names that, you know, because they have other ties into, into baseball. And that's, I, I feel like I'm forgetting one of the major ones, but, uh, what if, oh, of course, um, Bichette, who's, who's a first round pick in every league and, and rightfully so, uh, they will be, I talked about the Dodgers will be on, you know, one of my screens all year. I, I, Toronto is going to be on, they're going to have dedicated spot on my TV this year for sure. Anthony Rizzo re-upped with, uh, the Yankees. What's the fallout in the Bronx from that move? You know, Rizzo's a tough call because I first thought is you think, okay, perfect, perfect place for him, right? I mean, the short porch, uh, lefty swinger, but he's also at an age where, I, I don't know, he's about 32, going in on 33. Um, he, he may just be like a 460 slugging guy now. I, I'm curious if, I, I've seen projected lineups that say he might bat first, which would make me much more interested in Rizzo just to pick up all those extra at bats. And I'm willing to give, I think he's got enough power where he still knocks in 65 runs, but then maybe you're talking about 115 runs scored. The Yankees are a fascinating team, very oddly constructed team where the like Joey Gallo's going to strike out a million times. How many games can Josh Donaldson play? How many games can Giancarlo Stanton play? Even Aaron judge to some extent, we're playing that game with him. I don't know what they're going to do with catcher now that they've traded Sanchez as a couple of different options. And of course, I think we all expect them to cut a check for somebody. We don't know who it's going to be, but you always think that the Yankees, or maybe it's even in mid season. Does DJ LeMahieu have a comeback season in him? Because Rizzo is at the age that he's at, 
I'm probably going to be more likely than not underweight on Rizzo, but I'm most what I'm really curious about is where they slot him because if he does bat leadoff, I I do admit that probably bumps him up a, a half to maybe even a full round on my board. Interesting thing in New York as well. Josh Donaldson has been traded there, as we know, and there are all kinds of rumors and reports that amongst the anti-vax contingent within the MLB that he may well be one of them. And I just heard this morning that they, uh, or read somewhere this morning, that if you're not vaccinated, you're going to be Kyrie Irving of baseball. You're not going to be allowed mm-hmm. to play in New York. And I can tell you, he's not going to be allowed into Canada to play in Toronto. Toronto. Yep. So if if he's not vaccinated or for players who aren't vaccinated, that's 90 games. Right, half the season at home plus ten games in Toronto. That's, That's a kill shot. You can't you can't draft a player like that unless he's like your last round pick. You'll just be a, a maintenance problem. And this is one of the unique problems we have with fantasy today is that it's not like there's a website where we can get the vaccination status on everybody, right? And again, you know, if you would, if you were to draft Kyrie Irving in your fantasy basketball league, all he's done is just take up space. It the worst thing you can have in fantasy is a player who's too good to cut but you can't trade him and you can't play him. And so I'd be, look, I just, maybe it won't be, it'll be much to do about nothing with Donaldson. But when you also mix in, you fold in these 36 years old and he's had so much trouble staying healthy. I mean, that was the last time Toronto went to the Oakland third base market. They did great with an MVP and everything, but I, Josh Donaldson is pretty much, there's no price I would take him right now, even though I still think if he could get on the field for 120 games, he'd be useful. I just not confident for, various reasons that's going to happen so it's this is challenging and this is where i do get frustrated is that we're not a lot of this information we don't know um i know chris sale is um i believe unvaccinated i, I was not going to draft sale anyway for a variety of reasons and now that he's had a setback i, I think pretty much everybody's going to be down on sale but um one, one of my favorite players but I, I joke with my red sox friends that the day they offered chris sale the contract extension a few years ago and look i, I don't begrudge anybody making their money and he was underpaid early in his contract but we joked that he must have driven 140 miles an hour to the ballpark to sign that contract because man um they're they're gonna get a horrible return on it i I take zero joy in that i love chris sale and and he's a warrior and he'll pitch hurt and everything but between his injury issues and maybe the vaccination issues he's just gonna be a fantasy headache i mean he's basically not on my board i i this may sound crazy I wouldn't take him for a dollar in the mixed league. I'm just not going to, Chris Sale, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Or nominate him, let somebody else who's got a little more confidence uh, spend the money that you're not willing to spend on on a guy like that. Uh, yeah, this whole situation is pretty interesting. And I, I was wondering when I first heard the news, the governments here in Canada are b- relaxing a lot of the restrictions that they have. And the federal government has relaxed a lot of the cross-border t- restrictions. We used to have to get a PCR test to fly home from vacation. And now they've, they're waiving that, that requirement entirely. I don't know if non-citizens still have to do it or what the situation is there. But I wonder if it might be worth taking a flyer on a guy like Donaldson, even if you uh, suspected that he was... Um, going to miss some games because of COVID vaccine issues in the expectation that governments everywhere are going to relax those earlier rather than later. And maybe, maybe Donaldson gets his 120, even though you didn't think it was possible at the time, knowing what you know about his vaccine status. It's a, it's a fair point to think that maybe it gets over applied in the market and you can short that. So uh, I, I see that angle. I, I guess with me, it's just I get nervous about the age and the injury history, too. And, and that's what knocks me out on Donaldson. But you make a valid point that 
maybe again, this is the Wayne Gretzky, right? You skate to where the puck is going, not where it's been. You know, perhaps if I'm fretting over some vaccination status, maybe I'm skating too much to where the puck is right now, and I'm not focusing on where the puck's going to be by midseason. Couple more guys that are interesting. You mentioned Chris Bryant earlier. He signed in Colorado, obviously not chasing the World Series anytime soon, but he got a good contract and it's a allegedly a good place to play for hitters. It seems to have been over the years, although not as good for home runs as people think. I think it's a better batting average situation. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But what are the fantasy ramifications for Chris Bryant joining the Mile High Club? Yeah, you know, Chris Bryant before the season was somebody I was gonna be out on because I was worried about his aging curve. If you look on baseball reference and, and player comps on, on some of these formulas, they're, they're not perfect, but there's a lot of players. I, one of the names that, that comes to mind is Hank Blaylock. There's a lot of players who were really good in their early twenties. I think uh, Evan Longoria is in that list who comped to Bryant. And I'm just afraid that he might not be a guy who's great in his thirties, but man, Coors Field just, it saw, it cures just about all that ails you. And, and you mentioned, the great thing about Coors is it's such an enormous park. That's what people miss. They think, oh, of course, field, all these home runs and everything. And, you know, yes, you, know, the, you do get a lot of runs there. It may be overblown as a home run park. But the problem is there's so much darn acreage in that place and you can't cover it. And, you know, pitchers get hurt not just with the home run ball and not just because their breaking ball won't bite as much, but because of the cheap you know, dink single that keeps an inning going. So um, you put Bryant in Colorado, that, that's going to really help. I, Obviously, I mean, nobody needs any assistance with that. On the flip side, this is, I look at Colorado's lineup and it, it just, man, there's like three or four dead spots in it. You know, I, I don't, I mean, Jose Iglesias might be their, their starting shortstop. I, you know, Sam Hilliard is a guy who's projected to, to have an OBP under 300. I, I still think even with Colorado's park, this will be at best a, a league average offense and might even be a little bit below average. And remember the tax of Colorado that these guys aren't as effective on the road because their timing gets messed up. The breaking pitches aren't breaking in the thin air. Then they go on the road and it gives them problems, which is something you always have to be mindful of. Also when players leave Colorado, it drives me crazy when somebody says, Oh, well this player is leaving Colorado. And so we'll just extrapolate his road history. It it doesn't work that way. You know, uh, Matt holiday leaves Colorado and all of a sudden, gee, he hits better on the road. Now I wonder why I'm sure Trevor story will be just fine wherever he winds up. I think Brian's probably going to be overdrafted. I don't like the depth of the lineup. I don't like the aging path of um, of his career and, and the guys that he's comping to. And maybe he's just a, a 25 or 30 home run guy at most. I don't think he's – I think the Chris Bryant who once won the MVP and was a first-round pick, I don't think that guy's ever coming back. And I feel like the – course field will obviously help him. But I feel like that's going to get over – folded into his value to the point that he'll probably go maybe around earlier than I'm ready to take him. And I, I don't think Colorado's the lineup you really want to invest in. There's a couple of guys. I Again, I'm always quoting Gene McCaffrey. I, th- I think uh, Diaz, their catcher, is a really nice value. But So he's somebody I'm interested in. But I'm not going to have a lot of Bryant this year. And finally, uh, the Reds traded Eugenio Suarez and Jesse Winker to Seattle. You mentioned uh, that in passing earlier. It seems obvious that there'll be a park effect. But how are you adjusting your expectations in detail for these two new Mariners? Even though I think Winker's a much better player than Suarez, I'm actually more likely probably to roster Suarez only because I think the price is going to be a lot more reasonable. And last year, you see this sometimes. I, this is a pet theory I have with Gleyber Torres, that when a player is stressed on defense, 
I wonder how much that affects him on offense. And we, you know, the Reds for at least a brief time tried to make Suarez into a shortstop. That that was a horrible um, experiment. As bad as his average has been the last couple of years, I mean, he hit 271 in 2019. He hit 283 the year before. His career average is 252. I don't see any reason why you couldn't project him to maybe hit 235 or 240 with power. I would like that. Uh, Winker, man, he murders right-handed pitching, doesn't hit left-handed pitching. He's had trouble staying on the field. I think he only has what, one season with, with more than 500. Actually, he's never gotten to 500 plate appearances. Last year was 485. Now, part of that has been the Reds jerking him in and out. I, I just would like to see him anywhere but this park, and I don't want to pay for a full season that he's never shown us. So even though Winker is a guy, I mean, we, we love his profile. He never strikes out, relatively speaking, and he, he's very selective getting the pitch he wants. He has a good walk rate. And maybe the Seattle lineup can be league average. It's been a while since we've said that. But I think Wicker is likely to be just a little bit overpriced for my taste. And I'm actually curious to get Suarez at what I think is a nice discount. I think there's a lot of room for profit with Suarez. Because I don't I, look, there's batting average risk, but there's also batting average upside. He's given us decent averages before. His career average isn't bad at all. I think the idea that, oh, Suarez, he's just destined to hit 185 till the end of time. I don't buy that at all. Well, Scott, this has been very interesting so far. We'll take a break get our National League and American League news reports, and then we'll come back and finish the discussion. Sounds great. Scott Pianowski writes at a Hall of Fame level for Yahoo Sports, and he'll be back a little later in the show. Coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show, and I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time today, our Baseball HQ analysts dig deep in all the player moves that have gone on. In playing time tomorrow, the roster forecasters at Baseball HQ look at what it all means for those rosters. In HQ Now, we announce a new product, HQ Basics. It's all designed for draft day, and I'll have more on that a little later in the show. In Rotisserie Gaming, Ray Murphy has the 2022 edition of his Straight Draft Guide, always something we look forward to at BaseballHQ.com as we head into the heart of draft season. And in our minor leagues coverage, Chris Blessing looks at the prospects who've been traded in March. And those are just four of the literally dozens of great articles, reports, and commentaries you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasts in playing time tomorrow. There are buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in Matt Cedarholm's column, The Big Hurt. We have scouting, and it's focused on fantasy baseball, as well as groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So when you add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here. Time now for our Market Watch Player News Reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League Report and leading off our National League News. And it's our old friend, Baseball HQ Pitcher Matchups Analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show for 2022. Very good to be back and uh, good to have a season 
getting underway very soon. And of course, during the lockout, there was no player movement, but there's been plenty to make up for lost time since they signed the agreement. And perhaps no bigger news, Nick, than the Dodgers winning the Freddie Freeman sweepstakes and signing a six-year contract, $160-plus million, and the rich get richer in Los Angeles. Jock Thompson covered the story. What happens in that already loaded uh, Dodgers lineup? Well, Freeman moves to the uh, what is at least on paper the National League's most productive lineup. He projects to play first base every day, rack up all kinds of counting stats. Uh, the ripple effects are very significant here. And the first base of Max Muncy is currently the primary DH in what previously looked like a revolving lineup spot. And uh, center fielder Cody Bellinger seems less likely to get 20 games at his original first base position again. Gavin Lux looks like he will need to further develop his infield-outfield utility game. And off-injured Edwin Rios may get a scenery change real soon. Uh, the Dodgers keep us busy, and we'll keep fine-tuning playing time projection as we near opening day. Yeah, I think Rios' days are numbered for sure, as Los Angeles might be able to package him up to get a little bit more pitching. I think the worry in Los Angeles might be that after you get past Bueller and Julio Arias, uh, all of a sudden the back of that rotation looks a little shaky. Clayton Kershaw, of course, if he's healthy, will be fine. Tony Gonsolin has shown some signs. Andrew Heaney was the guy they signed in the offseason, Nick, and Andrew Heaney has not been a world beater to to this date so far. No, he hasn't at all. I uh he has been uh, was uh, real problematic last year, very off and on, some good games, some bad games. So uh, I'm not sure he's what the Dodgers really need. Meanwhile, it uh, looks like Oakland's tearing down the franchise and getting rid of everybody. And the portents that Freeman was not going to be back with Atlanta were confirmed when they acquired Matt Olson in a trade, signed him to an extension immediately. So kind of a thumbing of the nose towards Matt Olson. Although general manager Alex Anthopoulos was on TV, he looked like he was about to break out crying when he announced that uh, the, the Olson trade and the likelihood that Freeman was therefore not going to return. But what do we think of Matt Olson moving from the very spacious Oakland facility to the somewhat more friendly Atlanta. Well, Olson may not be Freddie Freeman, but he's really not very far off. He's a bit younger than Freeman. He won't hit for as high of an average, uh, but likely hit more home runs. Olson has a career expected power index of 149. Uh, also be helped by the move to Truist Park. Truist Park is an above average venue for left-handed homers, while uh, Ring Central Oakland Coliseum suppresses home candidates. So, we could see Matt over Matt Olson going off for more homers this year. Uh, the players that were traded to Oakland only uh, only Christian Pache expected to see action with the Braves in 2022. Atlanta will have to fill that spot, and they may look to acquire an outfielder before opening day, especially with the news that Ronald Acuna may be out until sometime in May. Yeah, I think. I mean, obviously, we all know that Matt Olson is a first-rate player, and uh, I just didn't realize how much power he had. I was reviewing it, and uh, over the last three years, uh, you're looking at 36 homers, 14 in the in the uh, COVID season, and 39 last year in Oakland. And 39 home runs in Oakland is seems like the equivalent of 60 home runs everywhere else because it's such a big stadium. So I think uh, Olson will probably fit in pretty well in Atlanta as in the center of their lineup and they figure to score some runs. I think this is a really good move for Olsen and a really good opportunity for uh, National League only players in fantasy to have a target for first base. Yeah, I think it is too. I mean, we could see Olsen uh, easily go over 40 home runs in uh, in that uh, in that venue and may may challenge 50 or maybe even higher. Uh, and uh, there, and and 
Atlanta's going to score a lot of runs. So lots of runs batted in, lots of runs scored. I think it's a, it's a good move for, for Olsen and for Olsen owners. And we should point out, yes, that in 2021 in Oakland, not as powerful a lineup, certainly as Atlanta's, 111 RBIs, 101 runs scored. And while his batting average was 271, which seems a little bit out of character, and we sh- maybe should expect that to drop a little bit, a 371 on base percentage based on a, a healthy 13, 14% walk rate. Right. So, uh, you know, if you're on an on base league, Olsen certainly is, uh, is a great guy to have in your life. I don't think there's any any negativity here in terms of Olsen with that move. Chris Bryant was maybe the next biggest free agent after Freeman signed, and Chris Bryant surprised a lot of people, Nick, by signing with the Colorado Rockies. You'd think that uh, in in a situation like this, a veteran player might want to sign somewhere where he probably had a chance to at least make the playoffs. That doesn't look likely with the Rockies. Jock Thompson covered this signing. Uh, What's the portents for Chris Bryant? Yeah, you have to wonder what the Rockies uh, management has in mind here with the lineup to uh, various uh, changes they made at the end of last year and the beginning of this year. But uh, for, for Chris Bryant owners, this is certainly a good move. Uh, plus defender Ryan McMahon at third base, C.J. Cron ensconced at first. Bryant seems destined for left field in Coors on a most-of-the-time basis. Uh, but they could well take advantage of his corner infield versatility when injuries hit. The player here is likely to be Connor Joe. It's really too early to make that call. Uh, last season, Bryant posted a 265, 363, 481 year with 25 home runs. Uh, kind of a mad year by his past uh, Rookie of the Year and MVP standards. But now he gets half his game to his field. Uh, some, some of that, some of those uh, counting stats and uh, uh, home runs and, and maybe even a, a, an increased batting average are likely coming back. A lot of confusion trying to figure out what the Rockies front office is doing. Uh, why did they let uh, Nolan Arenado go? Why did they let Trevor Story go? And then sign someone like Chris Bryant. But um, we can't figure that out for them. It is an interesting story. And, and, of course, a lot of times we look at the Colorado Rockies management and we think, you know, scratching our heads thinking, what are they doing now? And certainly this is no exception. But some of the uh, roster predictions I've seen for Colorado have Bryant hitting second in that lineup, which is, you know, negative news in the sense that it's a, a somewhat reduced opportunity to drive in runs, especially when you're looking at probably Jose Iglesias at the bottom of that order and Raymel Tapia at the top of the order with a you know 330-ish OBP. Uh, so that's not so bad. But Chris Bryant's runs might go up. He's got some uh, veteran hitters behind him. And uh, of course, he's going to get more plate appearances hitting second than he would have uh, hitting fourth. Right. Very definitely. So uh, it should be interesting to see what happens with, uh, with CJ Cron probably penciled in as the uh, as the number four hitter, his uh, RBIs could certainly go up someone as, as uh, strongly on base percentage as Brian in front of him. Moving along, uh, it seems like Nelson Cruz is just never going to stop playing baseball. He's over 40 years old. He's got another contract, a one-year deal to uh, play for the Washington Nationals. Uh, Phil Hertz was on this story, and I think one of the underappreciated uh, aspects of this deal is Washington's actually a pretty good park for hitters. Yeah, yeah, it is indeed. At, at 42, Cruz may take some, maybe on the downward side of his career, but he's still likely to return uh, around $20 in value and hit 30 plus home runs. Uh, did have a relatively poor second half in 2021 with a 714 OPS. So uh, fantasy managers may not want to go the extra buck to acquire him, but maybe someone to look at as you're toward the end of the draft. Uh, much of that second half performance took place while he's playing 
for Tampa in Tropicana Field, and he wouldn't be the first player to struggle in, in uh, Tropicana Field, so uh, and succeed still elsewhere. National Park, as you said, an above-average place for right-handed power hitters. Uh, an interesting signing for the uh, Nationals, uh, and Cruz could keep uh, producing very well. Just, uh, you know, that second half scares you a little bit but uh, at his age, but uh, he's certainly produced and has a, has a good track record. He does. I think some of the questions that surround the signing, Nick, are the lineup. Washington's been kind of um, bailing, as it were, trying to set themselves up for some kind of future possibility, which doesn't really ring true when you think of Nelson Cruz. I mean, if you're in a rebuilding mode, the last thing you need is a 42-year-old DH. You'd think they'd want to give some at-bats in the DH slot to some of their prospects or some of the guys, you know, rotate guys around, see what they have. And uh, instead, they pick up uh, Nelson Cruz. The question, of course, is, is the lineup going to be strong enough at the top for Nelson Cruz to drive in runs? I mean, we expect him to hit 30-plus home runs for sure. And the short answer is, I think, yes. I mean, Cesar Hernandez is projected to be at the top of the batting order. Not a great on-base percentage guy, around 325 or so. But then you got Juan Soto, and Juan Soto is a 450 uh, OBP last year. And that's just astonishing levels of getting on base and that's got to be making Nelson Cruz's mouth water although Juan Soto's going to hit his share of home runs which means he's uh, not Cruz won't get the chance to drive in Hernandez and uh, ninth hitter Victor Robles on the rare occasions when they get on right very definitely I mean that could put a dent in things but uh, it looks like a, a good spot for Cruz to land I think and uh, uh, and he's still got plenty left in the tank uh, could be a very interesting season for him I'm going to talk with Ray about uh, Jesse Winker and Eugenio Suarez moving to Seattle. Uh, talked about it already with uh, Scott Pianowski, so we've got some intel there. But what does it f- look like from the Reds' angle, I think, is what uh, I'm more interested in. Winker and Suarez were starters. It looks like that's a complete rebuild going on there, a teardown, you might even call it. Uh, Tom Kephart on the story. What is the likely outcome here for the Reds with the departures of Winker and Suarez? Freddie joins a crowded outfield mix, uh, BA liability, uh, potential to bury a team in the BA category. His plate patience makes him a palpable uh, commodity in on BP leagues. Uh, departures of Suarez and Winkler mean that uh, youngster Jose Barrio is likely to get a long leash at shortstop with, uh, with uh, 2021 shortstop Kyle Farmer likely to see plenty of playing time at third base. Uh, and off-injured uh, veteran Mike Mustaka, likely the team's primary DH. So a lot of shuffling going on with that. With that, they're hoping to keep uh, Mustaka healthy and in the lineup. Uh, Barrera has nothing left to prove in the minor leagues after torching both AA and AAA in 2021, but has yet to establish himself in the majors. And Farmer had what might have been a career year, although the growth he showed in uh, contact rate and hard contact index suggests that 2021 was not a total mirage. Uh, Mustakas has yet to produce since joining Cincinnati in 2019. Uh, so uh, we'll have to see what happens with him. Uh, but hopefully uh, the injuries will, will be, uh, there'll be fewer of those with him in the DH spot. I'm interested in that analysis from the point of view of shortstop. I know in the new CBA, Nick, they've put in some provisions to try to lessen the amount of shenanigans that teams play with with their young players about you know manipulating playing time and so forth. And even with all of that in place, I don't see that the uh, 
Reds have any incentive at all to call up Jose Barrero and get his service clock started. Uh, how that all that other stuff works, I don't know yet, and I don't think anybody really knows yet what's going to happen. But I, we've already seen signs of the big league management still taking advantage of playing time manipulation. So I don't think uh, Kyle, Far- I think they're going to start the year with Kyle Farmer at short, frankly. And uh, he's, he showed, uh, as you said, some flashes of competence last year with the bat, but in, overall, I don't think he's going to be a, a, a big league hitter. So I, th- I think the opportunity here might be grab Jose Barrero, if they, especially if they announce that he's been sent down before the season starts, because the chances are they're going to, sooner or later, they're going to have to bring him up. Right. Uh, yeah, eventually they will, they will certainly have to. So I, And probably if, uh, if he's not pencil in as the initial lineup, a good person to, to grab and uh, put back on your reserve and have him ready when he, when he does come up. And finally, maybe the worst news of the offseason, and this uh, this is really unfortunate for San Diego, for people who had early drafts. I was in a couple of early drafts where Fernando Tatis went second overall in both of them behind Trey Turner. Tatis had some kind of series of motorcycle crashes, the last one of which uh, broke his wrist. His left wrist is going to be uh, have to be reset and rebuilt a little bit. Three months with the surgery coming up, Jock Thompson covering the story. Of course, San Diego cannot replace Fernando Tatis, but they do have to put somebody out there to take his spot in the batting order. How does this affect the Padres? Uh, really, really bad news for the Padres. It's, it, it looks as though his left wrist has been fractured, probably happened early in the uh, offseason, and uh, flared back up when he began swinging in camp. Uh, last year, his shoulder limited him to 130 games in 2021, and confirmed everyone entering 2022 and now we have this on top of that uh even if he returns sometime in june his power could suffer early on depending on injury variables and with the shoulder still in play he no longer seems like a great fantasy bet until at least the second half of the season his most likely replacements include uh, projected second baseman joe cronenworth who played 41 games at shortstop last year uh but the biggest early playing time winner could be Haseon kim whose initial uh, major league uh, contact struggles of 73% contact rate, 202 BA over 267 at bats last year, were a first in his professional career. He's only 26, a great defender, uh, and in San Diego on a four-year deal, he'll get more chances beginning right now. Uh, another player to watch uh, is uh, Uber, Uber prospect C.J. Abrams. He saw all of 183 plate appearances at AA before he broke his leg last season. He likely begins in the high minors and needs that high minors. I about fast promotions and impressive spring and a fast start could get Abrams to San Diego faster than some people might think. Uh, the athletic Abrams has skills to make that happen, but you have to wonder what, uh, what all of this is going to mean both for the Padres and for Fernando Tatis. All right, Nick, uh, kind of breaking up there a little bit, but I think we got the gist of it. I appreciate you taking the time this week, and we'll talk to you again in seven days' time as the uh, games will be underway. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a Baseball HQ pitching analyst and our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Let's turn it over to the American League co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. We're swimming in news, PD. It's great. It is. And uh, for a while there, of course, everybody was wondering if we'd ever have news. But gosh, once they signed the uh, signed the deal, there's plenty of news to go around. Uh, I thought we could do the moves by team, if that's all right. Uh, and I wouldn't mind starting in Toronto, close to uh, our home here. 
The big news, of course, and I talked about this with Scott Pianowski, uh, the trade for third baseman Matt Chapman. How does this affect Chapman's uh, rotisserie value, fantasy value, as far as you're concerned? I was actually doing projection updates this morning for a bunch of the guys who got traded. That, you know, that used to be like a weekly task or so for me, and currently it's a daily, if not multiple times daily task, right? Um, so uh, I just this morning ran through some of those recalculations. The, the projection impact on Chapman wasn't huge. He picked up three or four home runs, but only like three or four points of batting average. He's still a 228 batting average or something like that with you know low 30s home runs and full-time, assuming he's healthy enough to play full-time. Uh, you know, the questions about his performance are, as they were before the trade, they're still about health more than they're about, you know, the team context or the park factors. You know, he what pretty widely reported was still playing through some lingering hip issues last year. So we'll have to see how much that continues to impact him or if we get back to the, you know, pre-2021 version of Chapman as uh, as he moves to Toronto. 2019 version would be all right, I imagine, for Toronto management and for their fans. Uh, Chapman, more than the stick, and this is not really relevant to most fantasy formats, but he definitely shores up uh, what was looking like a suboptimal third base situation. Yeah, that was a glaring need for Toronto. You really couldn't imagine that between second base and third base, they were going to run both Santiago Espinal and Kevin Biggio out there. So those guys turn into a second base competition now, which seems a little more reasonable. And he, of course, the other benefit that we see with Chapman going to Toronto is of you know, great upgrade in third base defense too, which benefits the, uh, you know, the pitching staff, especially the, uh, you know, a couple of the left-handed pitchers, you know, uh, Hung Jin Ryu, who's returning and the new guy, uh, Yusei Kikuchi, both, uh, who, both of whom are lefties who will face a lot of righties who are presumably going to uh, yank ground balls into Chapman's glove. So there are some ancillary benefits there. Well, speaking of uh, Yusei Kikuchi, they did sign him as a free agent. A pretty decent money package, too, I have to say, for a guy with a five-something career ERA. But the word is that Toronto has figured out some kind of pitching magic. We saw it last year with Robbie Ray, presuming that maybe this year it's going to be Kikuchi. What, what say your projections? Yeah, Kikuchi you know, was a favorite of mine at this time last year and spent the first half making me look very good. Uh, you know, he had punched up his velocity in the short 2020 season, carried that over to 2021, was getting really good results. I think he made the all-star team last year. And then the velocity went poof and the results followed, uh, you know, ended the season you know, with a really bad second half where the velocity was down, and he was giving up home runs in bunches, which is sort of a scary thing for the move to the AL East. Uh, but to your point, you know, we're going to have to see what whether Toronto can, uh, you, you know, it's kind of a similar situation to Ray in that we've seen better results from him before, and it's going to be whether Toronto's got some secret sauce to get him back into first half of 2021 mode rather than second half mode. Minnesota was real busy the last few days. Uh, first, they acquired shortstop Isaiah Kiner-Falefa from Texas, and they packaged him up with third baseman Josh Donaldson, sent them to New York. The Yankees sending back Gary Sanchez and Gio Urshela. So let's start with all of that. Uh, how do you think um, Sanchez and Gio Urshela are going to fit into Minnesota and what it does for their value? 
Yeah, it's interesting. First of all, I have to say I really enjoyed I I can't give credit, but I think it was multiple people who were joking about their poor investment in Kiner Falefa twins jerseys on the uh you know, 18 hours or whatever it was. He was actually a twin. So uh, <laughs> that cracked me up over the weekend. But, uh, you know, it's ter- in terms of w- the guys who actually ended up in Minnesota here, you know, the guidance seems to be that Gary Sanchez is something of an afterthought. You know, the twins between, you know, they had a version of Sanchez, you know, a, a bat first catcher in Mitch Garver and traded him away to get Kyler Falefa, uh, which in turn had turned the catching job over to Ryan Jeffers, who now still looks like the lead guy. I don't think Sanchez is a threat to him. I'm still not even sure if Sanchez is on the team when we get to opening day, uh, let alone whether they'll actually let him venture behind the plate. But that sort of remains to be seen. Uh, or, you know, Urshula, you know, drops into third base with uh, the departure of Donaldson. That's obviously a defensive upgrade. And it's still a little unclear to me what's going to happen at shortstop. They could play Jorge Polanco there and have Luis Arias as the starting second baseman, but it seems like they're uncomfortable with Polanco at shortstop. He, I think, is in the lineup for the first spring game on Thursday at second base, which sort of suggests that there's work to be done at shortstop. So I think we're on, I don't know, Trevor Story or Carlos Correa watch here, at least until those situations get resolved. Minnesota also acquired right-hander Sonny Gray from Cincinnati. Uh, obviously, this seems like a benefit for Sonny Gray. Great American ballpark versus target field. It looks looks like a no-brainer, but how how much of an impact is it? I mean, it's good for sure. Uh, you know, great, great American is, as you say, one of the top, uh, not, not just a good hitter's park, but in particular, uh, you know, one of the top home run yielding parks, and that has been a periodic bugaboo of Gray's throughout his career. Uh, you know, Minnesota, you know, plays, you know, more middle of the road than that, um, especially, and is especially going to protect Gray against left-handed batters where he has, you know, again, had some periodic struggles. You know, so he drops right in at the top of this rotation, and there's a bunch of churn behind them it's going to remain to be seen but with the kids bailey ober and joe ryan and randy dobnak and maybe bill and dylan bundy and lewis thorpe i mean there's a you know they, they needed some stability at the top of the rotation because two through five right now is uh very much a uh, revolving door and we'll have to see who pitches well at game start, how innings limits factor into that. And for that matter, whether there are even more reinforcements coming to this rotation, because quite honestly, they could still use them. They could. I, I had to chuckle when you said uh, included Dylan Bundy in the list of kids in the uh, <laughs> potential <laughs> I mean, that's lineup. Not good news, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, just including him in general is probably not so great. Uh, the Yankees we mentioned acquired Kiner Falefa and Donaldson. Uh, what happens for those guys in New York, and how long is Kiner Falefa going to be hanging around, and where? It's interesting. I was a little, I, I had a little initial trouble figuring out what this deal was, and when you saw, you know, from the Yankees' perspective that they sent out Sanchez, and we all remember that Kiner Falefa, you know, was doing some catching in Texas before he, you know, moved out to the infield. I wondered if he was part of the catching solution for the Yankees. It seems like now he's not, and Ben. Ro- Rorvelt, who was also in the trade, you know, tags tags in with Higashioka at catcher. And Kiner Falefa is the shortstop. It seems like the Yankees had been targeting him even from Texas for some time as their, 
bridge shortstop, for lack of a better term, until Anthony Volpe and some of the other prospects are ready. Uh, you know, so this is a bridge year or two at shortstop for uh, for Connor Falefa, and that kind of fills in the gaps around the rest of the infield. Donaldson obviously goes to third. Glaber Torres goes to second, where he moved at the end of last year and you know, reportedly is way more comfortable there. And there's some hope that the bat will come back as a result. And the newly signed Anthony Rizzo, you know, sticks around at first base, which leaves DJ LeMahieu without a position. Now the DH spot is open to the extent that they're willing to put Stanton in the outfield, which will probably happen at least sometimes. But it looks like Luke Voigt's out of a job here. And it looks like LeMahieu is a, you know, sort of a 10th player. So we'll, you know, Obviously, all things are open to change with injuries and that sort of thing. But that's where where the Yankees are on track to start opening day with LeMahieu. You know, they're saying he's going to play every day between first, second, and third. Um, but Voight, it seems like, is you know sort of on the taxi squad waiting for a uh, for a fax telling him where to go at the airport, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, the uh, it's it's going to be. It looks like a, a, a situation where clearly you you said Voight's on the way out and I, I don't I don't doubt that for a second and frankly it'll be good news for him because at least uh, presumably he'll end up somewhere where they want him to to swing a bat once in a while that's for sure uh, let's go to the other side of the continent and Seattle they picked up uh, Jesse Winker and Eugenio Suarez from Cincinnati as the Reds go into a full-on fire sale dump mode how do you like Jesse Winker and Eugenio Suarez who go the wrong direction for offense from tiny little Cincinnati to great big uh, Safeco yeah, park park wise, it's not great for them. But that's to me, that's really where the bad news ends. And I guess my overall editorial comment is, <clears throat> excuse me, that this lineup just looks super fun right now. I can't wait to see this team. Uh, I, I'm I'm already imagining myself watching a lot of uh, a lot of Seattle on my uh, on my West Coast baseball watching nights here from uh, Boston, watching the uh, watching the late games as I go to bed. I think Seattle is going to be right at the top of my watch queue. Uh, you know, Winker fits into this lineup super well. And, you know, just to recap everything else they did this winter, you know, they've got Adam Frazier to play second. Suarez is going to play third now, filling in for Kyle Seeger. You know, Kelnick is here and going to be here from the beginning. And he picked it up in September last year. So maybe he hits the ground running this year and Julio Rodriguez isn't far away. We're going to see him sometime this summer. It's just a, it's a fascinating offense in the making here. I can't wait to see how, how it plays and Winker and Suarez are both going to you know, be, have some very good lineup context here that I think kind of washes away the bad ballpark news. Meanwhile, they traded out Justin Dunn and Jake Fraley, but that seems to me like a case of, recognizing what they were building and just figuring that these two guys didn't have a place in it. Yeah. And you know, certainly, you know, Dunn has been an interesting prospect for a couple of years and might've fit, fit into the plans this year. Uh, but you know, they may have another move to make here to add some starting pitching depth. Certainly that's, uh, you know, that situation is not as exciting as the lineup is right now. So they've got a good bullpen in place, you know, with a lot of interesting pieces. But the flex in Marco Gonzalez, Robbie Ray, Logan Gilbert, Justin Sheffield rotation could use some bolstering to get, if nothing else, Sheffield out of there and into a swing role or give them the uh, ability to monitor Gilbert's innings. Obviously, um, you know, the top three are there and going to take, take a workload, but they don't have a, uh, 
you know, they, they don't have a, lot, have a lot of margin for error. So you can imagine some kind of veteran pickup signing here in the next uh, in the next week or so. Well, Ray, we mentioned that Oakland uh, made some deals. Matt Chapman's gone, stays in the league. Uh, Chris Bassett and Matt Olson also gone. They move out of the league. And meanwhile, there seems to be a gigantic number of holes forming in the Oakland lineup. And uh, where there are holes, there are opportunities. And I guess the question is, is there anybody in Oakland's current situation? And if we presume that maybe Manaya is going to be not long for the Oakland, maybe Frankie Montas could be going. I've heard Raymond Oriano is on the block. So this team could look even more different in two weeks than it looks now. And the question is, when you look at the Oakland situation, is there anybody who's likely to be left who gets an opportunity and runs with it? I, I think this is really one of the more interesting things to watch over the course of the next couple of weeks, because like you said, there are going to be opportunities here. It might be for some of the guys who are on the roster. It might be for some of the guys who come back in the future trades of, like you said, Montez and Manaya. It seems a foregone conclusion. They're going to be gone at some point, but we've talked before. And I know some, you know, not just you and I, but you know, some of your, some of your guests over the years have banged the drum that you can make a lot of fantasy profit by finding playing time on bad teams you know think about you know the marlins and the orioles of the last couple of years and you know there were always a couple of guys in those otherwise forgotten lineups that return good value and there's you know there are going to be opportunities here you know from the guys who have already already shown up here i'm not sure I'm that excited about anybody. Kristen Posh comes to mind because, um, you know, he was a headliner in the Matt Olson trade. It's a name that has been kicking around prospect list for a while, but his bat really hasn't played in the high minors or the majors. They're going to play him. I'm sure he's going to be in center field because his glove is elite and they'll probably just leave him there and let him figure out the hitting, but not terribly exciting um, unless, you know, he surprises us with the bat. One, one guy who's kicking around here who really – you know, is probably the, the the top of my list for winners here, such as you can say it, is Seth Brown, who between DH, the first base spot, and the outfield really can find a no- number of paths to playing time, you know, a- has demonstrated some power. And it seems like while in the past when this team was good, they had other ways, they had other options to sort of keep him out of the lineup. He's going to be by default one of their better hitters and power sources this year. And I, I think he probably works his way into a lot of playing time. Uh, he's somebody I've been targeting all winter, really, even before the fire sale got underway. And uh, so far, that I, I'm pretty optimistic that it's going to work out that way for him. On the Baseball HQ depth chart for the athletics, boy, this is something I don't think I've ever seen before. There's a lot of positions here that don't add up to 100%, and it seems like when you when you look at that, that's a pretty good reflection of the situation there because uh, our analysts may be looking at it and going, there's got to be somebody coming in at some point, or you know, there's prospects who might get called up a, a little bit unexpectedly. But, uh, for instance, there's... Uh, there's 100% at catcher with Sean Murphy, also br- rumored to be ticketed on his way out of town. At first base, we've only got 40% of the playing time allotted to Eric Thames, of all people. I uh, didn't even know he was still in baseball, and, and Brown maybe getting some uh, at-bats there. So this looks like a situation very much in flux for the time being. And for those of us who are drafting this weekend... I don't know if you can really look at anybody on Oakland's hitting side and say, there's a guy, maybe except for Seth Brown. 
Yeah, I think you're right. It, you, you make a good point about the depth charts because that's something we're consciously doing right now on the site. And in, and you're exactly right. It's something that we've very much not wanted to do before. The uh, you know the idea in normal off seasons is we want to be able to reflect 100% of the playing time or more. We'd rather err too high than too low. But you know, when we moved out all of the free agents and all the guys who got traded away in the case of Oakland – you know, we really made a conscious decision that at least for the very short term, for like the next week or 10 days, while the player movement carousel is spinning so quickly, we're not necessarily going to backfill to 100% playing time just for the sake of it, because, you know, just to do it because we feel like in cases where we feel like the solution is still outside the org. You know, a great example of that was when we moved Freddie Freeman off the Braves. And even before he had signed with the Dodgers, we moved into free agency. And, it, you know, we have a free agent list on the site and we put Freeman there along with all of the other free agents. But before the Olsen acquisition, we didn't project anybody at first base for the Braves because it was either going to be Freeman or it was going to be somebody who wasn't in the organization at the time. They weren't just going to hand first base to you know, I don't know, William Contreras or something like that, right? So there was no point in, you know, in jumping through hoops to make a projection that A, made no sense, and B, was only going to last a day or two. So that that's kind of where we are with the A's now. And to your point, I probably wouldn't even let this go past the weekend just because I want to be a little more sensitive to the fact that most people draft on weekends and maybe every weekend this month we'll at least be trying to take our best guess at how things are playing out in some of these un- in some of these buddied situations. So, so that our readers who are taking our depth charts into their draft rooms have have at least, have at least something to go on rather than a blank space. Looking at their rotation, if we assume that Montas and Manea are on the way, well, let's start Ray instead by saying let's assume that Montas and Manea are on the roster on opening day. Presumably, uh, one of them will be the opening day starter, and that they'll get their regular turns in the rotation. Can it? Can they be rostered safely? given the uh, absolute dearth of run production that's likely to be supporting them and a bullpen that doesn't exactly remind anybody of the, uh, you know, the nasty boys in Cincinnati a few years ago. Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, certainly I think compared to the team context, we thought they had a month ago, they need to be downgraded, even if they stay in Oakland, right? Surely the park is still a plus in their favor, but as you say, the, Run support is non-existent. The bullpen is a shadow of its former self. And then there's the you know there's the add-on concern about the division they play in, right? I mean, it used to be that we thought the West was a pretty good place to pretty favorable place to find pitching, at least relative to the AL East. But we just talked about how the Seattle lineup is supercharged. Texas has Semyon and Seager on board and are rebuilding their lineup there. Obviously Houston's still formidable. The angels, you know, if they're, you know, not so much an influx of new talent there, but if Trout and Rendon are healthy to start the year around Otani, that lineup gets longer too. You know, there, there are not the sort of easy nights in the AL West, the way they used to be. And the A's are going to be underdogs against every one of those opponents. So it's a, it's an uphill slog for Montas Samanaya for sure. The trade with Toronto for Matt Chapman got back four prospects and some of them were thought of as being pretty close to the major leagues and I noticed that we've given Kevin Smith who's a shortstop with allegedly with a good bat he certainly didn't show it in his cup of coffee last year but he's got more playing time 
logged in his favor on the Baseball HQ depth chart than any other offensive player in the lineup. And I'm wondering, what do you think of the likelihood that he gets that much playing time, first of all, and second of all, does he do anything with it that makes him worthwhile for peeking at as a fantasy possibility? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those cases where you know, the A's targeted him in that trade. So you got to think they're going to take a look at him and there's a reason he was included, right? Uh, you know, he is not, you know, he, he had a cup of coffee last year and didn't do much. And as far as, uh, you know, a prospect, you know, in our prospect rating scale, you know, he's a former fourth round draft pick, but we called him a, a 7C prospect, which gives him sort of a utility infielder kind of upside. Um, so, you know, not a heck of a lot of optimism in the, you know, in the scouting report there, but he can run, a, you know, he's a little bit of a power speed guy. The, the projection, you know, is a sub 250 batting average, but if he actually plays, you know, if you actually get 500 at bats, we're looking at, you know, in the teens for both home runs and stolen bases that, you know, that, that gets interesting, you know, kind of on the theme we were talking about earlier, where somebody has to get 550 plate appearances at these positions. And, you know, if Smith, if, if Smith, it happens to be one of those guys, there's a, you know, there's a fairly broad base of counting stats that he could, he could rack up here. So yeah, he's interesting, but I, you know, Jonathan VR could, or, you know, any number of other journeyman veterans could show up here in the next week and put him back into that utility role. So remains to be seen is unfortunately the best answer I have. And there's rumors afloat in the Toronto media, at least, and everybody's quoting sources close to the team, which I su- suspect sometimes means one another. But <laughs> but they uh, they seem to be suggesting that the Jays are indeed shopping for middle infield help. And uh, VR's name has been mentioned, but there's been some, they thought maybe Story could be signed and moved to second, things like that. So uh, that Toronto situation, also a bit fluid still, but uh, still pretty good. The two pitchers that they sent over in the deal were not so, or well, let me say they were not considered to be so re- major league ready, and that's Zach Logue and uh, Kirby Sneed. The Logue's a starter, Sneed's a reliever, but they both get some pretty good projected playing time on the uh, HQ depth charts. Yeah, and you know, and these depth chart projections, as you as we were alluding to earlier, are in a scenario where Montes and Manaya are still here. If they're not, it's going to be you know throw the door open from AAA and bring everybody up, right? So yeah, Logue and uh, Sneed and uh, you know, Adam Oler, uh, Oler, who I think came over in the, that was in the Olsen trade, right? So you know they've got new arms here. Uh, as far as holdovers, there's still Cole Irvin and uh, James Caprellian who did fairly well in the extended cup of coffee last year, but he's, uh, you know, he's notoriously brittle and, you know, probably can't be counted on for big innings again. So this is going to be a patchwork rotation in the, uh, you know, in the most literal sense of sense of that description, I think. And finally, Kansas city. How about this? Zach Greinke goes back to Kansas city. They got some crazy little innings there and he's going to get some, uh, can you go home again? I guess that's the question. What do we think of Zach Greinke fantasy-wise? I think it's great. I saw that uh, Dayton Moore had some comments the other night where he said that, you know, this is something that they've sort of had in mind, uh, you know, not not that they tampered with Greinke, but as an organization they had in mind about exploring for a number of years now. And it seems like that classic model where they've got this stable of young pitching, some of whom is more ready than others, some of whom have had more initial success than others, and – Greinke is going to be, you know, sort of the adult in the room, right? Now, you know, not only the 
you know, not only in the mentor kind of role and, you know, what, what rubs off in the clubhouse and in the dugout with the young pitchers, which, you know, is always a hard thing for us to quantify, but, you know, more from a team construction point of view, I think what we can quantify is when you're running a staff of entirely young pitchers, all of whom have innings limits, you need somebody who, quite honestly, you're not worried about what their the condition of what their arm is going to be in five or 10 years. So they can throw Granky out there every fifth day and let him do his thing. And Granky's thing will, I'm sure be, you know, slopping it up there at 87 miles an hour and, you know, messing with people's timing. He's the, um, you know, he's, he's, he's somehow we've reached a stage in life and this makes me feel old where I'm now imagining Zach Granky as the, uh, you know, the old guy from major league who's out there with the Vaseline under his cap, right? <laughs> you know, he's going to, yeah, he's going exactly. to, he's going to be basically, doing that for the Royals, you know, what, what every other day they're going to be running out there, one 22-year-old or another, and then, uh, you know, every fifth day it's going to be 39-year-old Zach Grinke and his, uh, yeah, and, his, and, his, and his jar of Vaseline. We should say that we're not accusing him of any skullduggery oh, no, in not, that but regard, but he's uh, on baseball. He's, running, he's, deck. Running out there with his, he's going out there with his guile. How's that? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a little better. Baseball HQ depth chart for Kansas City has Greinke at the top of the rotation, which maybe says more about the rotation than it does about Zach Greinke. But in a sneaky way, I might uh, I might be looking at him in the end game. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, he's he has. You know, we joke about the guile and the decline of his uh, his velocity and all of that, but he has mostly held it together. It's been a very gentle decline, you know, across 20 and 2020 and 2021, you know, he's now racked up 230 innings and an ERA just a tick above four. This is a better ballpark context than Houston was. The central's a pretty good place to pitch. Yeah. He's still durable for the most part. This is yeah, there's there there are reasons to think that you know, given what the acquisition going to cost is going to be, if he's an end gamer or a you know three dollar nominee or something like that, you could get a decent return on your investment here. I'll agree with you. Kansas City also acquired uh, relief pitcher Amir Garrett from Cincinnati. They sent away Mike Miner, uh, journeyman starter. I think is about the fairest way you can describe him, and maybe the most generous. But uh, what role do you think Garrett has in the bullpen in Kansas City, which, despite having Scott Barlow at the at the head of it, or perhaps because of Scott Barlow at the head of it, is not regarded as any kind of set thing that uh, Kansas City starters can rely on to hold on to leads if they happen to get some? Yeah, I think I, I like Barlow well enough. I you know I, I I certainly think his skills are sufficient to hold most of the closer role if he's given that opportunity. But the problem is the opportunity, right? And, you know, what really the story with this bullpen is that, you know, here in his second incarnation as a manager, Mike Matheny has eschewed the traditional closer role and he's shown a willingness to roll the, uh, you know, to spin the wheel for his closer on every night, on any given night, given anything from matchups or when he needs Barlow earlier in the ninth to earlier than the ninth to face a big part of the order or to play some lefty righty games with a guy like Garrett now that he's there and also to manage workloads. You know, he's, you know, this team has been very careful about, you know, relievers going to second, the third, certainly not the fourth day in a row. So between Barlow and Stomont and Luis Coleman was getting some very deep, 
um, draft and hold speculation this winter, I think with good reason, you know, you can throw Garrett into that hopper. I, you know, if you give me an over under on four saves for Garrett, I'll take the over on that this year. And before we let you go, Ray, since, uh, baseball HQ is up and running on all 12 cylinders, I'd say this is a, this is quite an operation that has spooled up very quickly. What's in store for baseball HQ subscribers now that the, uh, Preseason is underway. We're going to have games, I think, starting uh, started on Thursday with Boston, as a matter of fact, and they're really going full bore in Major League Baseball to get started by April 7th. What's Baseball HQ doing to keep up with all the action? Yeah, it's really, you know, we've gone from zero to 100, 100 with, uh, you know, the lockout ending just, you know, eight or nine days ago now and, you know, sitting there wondering whether we were going to be idle, be, be virtually idle and just keeping the lights on for another month to, you know, suddenly it's go time and the transactions are flying and drafts are getting scheduled and subscribers are coming back to the site in droves, which is great to see. And really we're trying to, you know, we're trying to support that as much as we can, you know, it's, we're always mindful of not introducing too much new stuff, be it new tools, new metrics, new research here in mid to late March, because there's enough going on and we have enough on the site to digest. And especially this year when, you know, certainly we had, we had our annual subscribers who have been around all along, but so many people were sort of hibernating during the lockout and, you know, we could measure site traffic and that sort of thing and see that, it, you know, eyeballs were, elsewhere while the lockout was going on, which was totally understandable. But now that people are coming back, I feel like everyone's in catch-up mode. So we're trying to just sort of guide everyone through the content that we would have would have had and in fact in some cases did have from January and remind people about some of the work we've done, do the work in March that we usually do. I, I've got my straight draft up opus my annual piece is up on the site today friday uh you know which has among other things a list of i would call it required reading but it's really the links to all of the key articles that we've already put on the site up for the entire preseason so more than ever it's about people who weren't necessarily reading things at the time we put them out to make sure that you know by the time they get to the draft table in two weeks or three weeks or whatever it is people feel as prepared to the extent they can, as if they had been preparing all winter. Well, I have to say for an operation that has been in catch-up mode, they've certainly mustered up a pretty good set of uh, articles and analysis and uh, something that all the fans can relish. That's the idea, right? And, you know, it's, uh, you know, I think we're also happy to be back that, uh, you know, there's a lot of hours being put in, but, you know, the uh, it is, as we say, the labor of love, right? You know, if, if you, we're working hard, but hopefully it doesn't feel like working. Well, that's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> Anytime my mom used to say, if you like your work, you'll never, uh, you'll never work a day in your life. And certainly that's what uh, applies to a lot of the guys at the site. Ray, thanks very much for helping us out with the First look at the American League for 2022 in the uh, Market Watch News reports, and we'll talk to you again next week. I'm sure we'll have another onslaught. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager and columnist at BaseballHQ.com, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. He'll be coming to the plate for his second at bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I just want to give you a quick reminder of what's coming up on the next editions of our pod. We'll have another expert feature interview on our Tuesday Tout Edition, and then next Friday, another Friday Full Edition featuring bullpen talk. 
with Baseball HQ columnist Doug Dennis and the long-awaited return of Alex Becky and the Frequent Flyer. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here. And, of course, joined by Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports, a new Hall of Famer, I have to say, elected into the Fantasy Sports Writers Association Hall of Fame this offseason. Where were you when you heard, and what was your reaction? Uh, th- thank you for, for mentioning that. It's um, I'm still kind of on a cloud from it. Can't can't really believe it. Uh, I found out in November I was going through a drive-thru, um, getting something to drink, and my good friend Andy Barron's uh, Yahoo colleague, and the FSWA president, he sent me a text. I just looked at my phone when I was waiting in the drive-thru, and it said, hey, man, have you checked your email in the last hour or so? Okay, well, no, I haven't. Checked my email, and I, and I saw the note that I had been inducted into this year's class with with Steve Gardner, um, our good friend who who runs things at Labor, awesome guy, uh, David Gonos, who has been a friend of mine in the industry for a long time, who I, I have great respect for, and the late Mike Taglier, who uh, just was a wonderful wonderful uh, football and, and baseball analyst and um it's, my heart goes out to his wife tabby we lost mike uh, last summer so i'm forever going to be linked with, with steve with david and with mike i love those guys and you know i i go into the hall of fame very gratefully and i and i want to try to be really gracious i mean i look at the early hall of famers you got people like ron chandler pioneer people like peter shanky visionary you know, I, I, I can't, my, what I've done in the fantasy industry doesn't match up with guys like that. And I have no problem saying it, but I've been around for a long time. I've covered a lot of different sports. I, I think I've offered some value and maybe some entertainment along the way. And for people to recognize that um, and you know, the nice things they say about you, it's, um, you know, it's, it's been, it's been really great, really lovely. And um, I just want to say again, I, gratitude is what comes to mind. You know, um, thanks to RotoWire for giving me a chance. Thanks to Fantasy Guru for giving me a chance. All the newspapers that employed me. Obviously, I've been at Yahoo now for I guess it's like thirteen or fourteen years. They've been wonderful to me, and the way I've been treated in the industry, you know, the opportunity to be on this program, you know, and, and other people's shows um, is really great. It's been really good for exposure. It's been really good just to help me be a better player. Um, so, you know, it's a it's a really great industry. Um, I've been really treated well by readers, by editors, and by um, colleagues and, and people in the industry that I share things with. So um, th- thanks for being a part of this. It takes a village. And um, you know, the fact that I've been able to make a career out of this speaks to that people have been really good to me. And I, I just want to say thank you for that. And of course, uh, David Gonos, you and I share another thing. He was in that same uh, that same first uh, mixed league Tout Wars auction that uh, you and I right. sat side by side, and he was just around the corner from us. And man, do I miss that! No funny guy. I know why we didn't. We're not doing Tout Wars in person this year. Hopefully next year. But you know, life is about friendships and experiences. And when I think of Tout Wars, I think about having a beer with you, or you know, watching basketball with, with Joe Sheehan, or um, you know, uh, t- hanging out with the late Steve Moyer and, and Laura Michaels. Man, do I miss those guys! You know, ha- having a great talk maybe even a little bit of an argument with my buddy mike selfino who's who's one of the brightest people you know seeing dvr seeing all the hq guys all the rotowire guys you know um all the roto world guys just it's go on and on yeah g mccaffrey seeing him every year you know I, i'll say one quick story about about steve moyer um who man did we miss him uh it's been a few years now since since he passed away around this time of year there was one year at tout wars where i was out with him and and mike and um 
I think Gene was with us too. And there was a problem with my hotel that I needed to, to fix. I forget exactly what it was. And I was going to duck out of our hangout a little early. And Steve's like, this, this is BS, man. I never get to see you. You're not leaving. You, you know, the hotel will still be there at two in the morning. You're, you're staying out with us, you know? And, uh, that's the way Steve Moyer was. He was a no BS type of guy. And, um, I remember one time we got in an argument about something and I thought maybe I'd gone over the line in the argument. And he said, Hey, look, you know, just cause you're wrong on this doesn't mean you're not my buddy. You know, don't, don't worry about that. But, um, you know, it's, it's about friendships and experiences, man. And, um, I've been very fortunate to, to make some great friends and have some wonderful experiences. And for that, I'm extremely grateful. Well, the honor is certainly earned just on the volume of work and the quality of work you've done at Yahoo sports, uh, you mentioned some other places you worked, but I think your Yahoo Sports experience alone should qualify you. And you had a column recently, I thought that's a case in point. It was terrific. It was uh, called Find All the Value You Need in the Outfield. And I don't want to talk too much about specific players. People should go and read it. It's free. Go to Yahoo Sports and search for Scott Pianowski and his all his articles will show up. There's a lot there about the uh, NCAA tournament too that's quite fun and interesting to read. But Scott, what do you think is the overall shape of outfield value in this year's drafts? Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a particularly outfield's always a fun place to invest because we can usually get anything you want. All five categories are in abundance there, and I, I think it's a market. It's a it's a player pool where you can do well at any price point, and we, it behooves you before your draft just to figure out like, okay, if I'm drafting an outfielder in in this area or spending this type of money on him in an auction or salary cap draft, you know, what type of player am I looking at? I, I see all sorts of great values. You know, Brian Reynolds, a player who plays for a small market team is good at a lot of different things, but maybe not outstanding in any one area. He's one of my targets. You look at what Robbie Grossman did in Detroit last year. Yeah. The average isn't so hot, but he's got on-base skills. Obviously he and Hinch go back to Oakland together and he was a 2020 guy. His ADP doesn't make any sense to me at all because it's, it's basically treating him like he's, he's like a scrub. Um, I think you can do well at any price point in the outfield. And it's just a matter of trying to find the underrepped or maybe underappreciated players in the middle round that's, that's going to serve you very well. Yeah, you set the thing up in tiers. I thought that was interesting. Uh, uh, of course, it's a fairly common thing to do, but I like the way you organized it. And uh, among some of the guys you looked at was Tommy Edmond. I think he was uh, uh, third tier. And uh, you said he's a trap. Why do you think Tommy Edmond is a trap? Yeah, you know, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about your Razzlam team about trying to find the marginal differences between players, and that that is ultimately the crux of what fantasy is. You know, when when you're it's your turn to draft, maybe you have two different positions you're thinking of, but you know, maybe the second base pool looks deep at the moment, maybe the first base pool doesn't, and that may break the tie and push you to the first baseman. It, it's all about marginal differences with Edmund. Okay. What's going on in St. Louis new manager last year. They let Edmund hit lead off pretty much the whole season, despite a profile that doesn't really fit a lead off hitter. His on-base percentage was 308. His, uh, whether you want to go with, um, with uh, weighted runs uh, created, or you want to go um, OPS plus he's been a below average hitter for two straight years. He was valuable in fantasy last year because he ran and because he played a full season and because of bit he batted leadoff. Now, he didn't run much in the truncated season, and I don't know that a new manager will stick with Tommy Edmond in the leadoff spot if he's going to maintain a 308 or a 317 OBP, which he had the last two years. They have a deep lineup. 
I know Edmund is one of several outstanding defenders on that team, but I'm worried that he's going to play a full season again. We'll see. Is he going to run as much as he, as he did last year? He could, but I, I, I wouldn't want to bet on anybody with the exception of a couple of players stealing 30 bases. And I'm really afraid he's going to end up batting seventh, eighth, or ninth. Now, that was a bigger kill shot in the National League before the DH was incorporated. It used to be if you wanted anybody who stole bases in the National League, you had to make sure they didn't hit seventh or eighth. That was the the way their value could go through the floor. At least that blow has been cushioned. But if he ends up at the bottom of the lineup, and I think they're deep enough that eventually that's going to happen, you're going to lose like 80 at-bats. And you, you may lose running opportunities. You're sure you're going to lose counting stats. Tommy Edmond is a player I'm very – and I had a lot of Edmond shares last year. I think he – the volume bailed him out. I think the lineup slot bailed him out. I think he's very much more a risk to to fall apart this year than he is to return value. I, I don't think I'll have him on any team. Tommy Edmonds still at the top of the roster list at Roster Resource, and I believe at Baseball HQ as well. Mm-hmm. So that could be a, a case where you don't know that anybody's going to take over the job. But one of the things that worries me in situations like this is they have good options. They, If they think maybe we could do better at the top of the lineup, they're not wrong. They've got guys who could uh, play at the top of the lineup. So uh, that is something to, to really be concerned about. Let me say one other thing about Edmund, by the way. This is something we're always looking to do in fantasy, is find a player who could offer similar value who's a lot cheaper. Harrison Bader, now he's more of a power contributor and less of a speed contributor, although he has a little of both. His projected average OBP and slugging are not that much different than Edmonds. There is a little bit of a hit in the average category, but and I'm not sure that Bader will necessarily ever percolate to the top of the lineup, but you're going to get Bader so much cheaper than Edmond, and I know this the, the positions don't completely match up because Edmond has a second base eligibility, but I feel like you can find Edmond, simo, similar Edmond guys who go a lot cheaper. I mentioned Rosario earlier if you want a middle infielder. Uh, he's he's not going to be totally powerless. He's going to run some. He has better batting average potential. And and I think for sure he's going to bat first or second all season where I don't feel that way about Edmund. I, you can find, it, if you like what Tommy Edmund is projected to do, I guarantee you, you can find somebody similar who's a lot more uh, affordable. And I, I behoove you, I urge you to try to do that. In your sub $4 bargain bin tier, right down at the bottom of it, call it the bottom of the barrel, some old boring veterans. And these are the kinds of players that many fantasy experts think will win you fantasy leagues. The old boring veteran that nobody's interested in. And I, in that category, in your column, I see David Peralta, I see Lorenzo Kane. What's your assessment of these two old boring veterans? You know, I, I do love boring veterans with both of those guys. I'm just concerned of how much they're going to be on the field and where they are uh, relatively in their careers, you know, mid thirties, you know, Peralta's I think 34 right now and Kane's maybe a year past that. The good news is that if you roster players like that in a mixed league, at least when, if they do play 110, 120 games, at least it's pretty easy to replace them. You're getting high, high replacement value and it's easier to take that blow. I'd be more nervous about a Peralta or a cane if I needed them in a mixed in a singular league and in an in a only league or something like that. But what I've tried to do, I do like boring veterans. In fact, one of the early things I kind of hang, I, I was hanging my hat on at Yahoo is something called the uh, Ibanez All Stars. The idea that Raul Ibanez was just this boring veteran in his thirties. Nobody ever seemed to want to pay up for what he just did. Maybe because he had no pedigree. Maybe because he was a late bloomer. And year after year, it seemed like he was just a great value. Whit Merrifield's been a player like that for a while. Paul um, Paul Goldschmidt, you know, for a while was like that. 
Um, last year, I thought he was a really good value. So boring veterans have kind of been my jam, but I've also tried to appreciate the, the way aging works in, in sports and the the better years are in the 20s. And I think sometimes I can fall in love with the with the boring veterans. I think this, this is more of a fantasy football thing for me because I think like you can't even go near running backs on a second contract anymore in football. But I've tried to skew a little bit younger. No, no offense to Raul Abanez. In fact, probably the best Ibanez comp in the current game is Nelson Cruz, where late bloomer f- figures it out, you know, right around 30, is great all through his 30s. And everybody's like, oh, well, this is he can't, he can't do this forever. And he's in a bad hitter's park and all this stuff. And Nelson Cruz keeps doing it. Now, now we're finally at the point where he's in his 40s. And I think a lot of us are worried that maybe the music has finally stopped with, with Cruz. But um, for many years, the, the Abanez All-Stars was my jam. The Boring Veteran was my jam. I've moved a little bit away from it. I'm not, I'm not abandoning it. But I've maybe taken a step away from it as I've tried to skew younger in recent years. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, you know this, you've been here before. Uh, I like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes, guys who are good value, not so good value. Let's start with your boons. These are players who look like they might be worthwhile at their ADP or dollar cost. Let's start in the American League with a batter who's a boon. Well, I always try to, you know, I, I guess I got into the Hall of Fame with maybe more of my quantity than my quality. So I'm going to try to offer you quality and a lot of times quality ends up being quantity in fantasy so hopefully this applies here i'll give you multiple choices for everyone if i can boone hitters american league labor torres look they mess with him with his positioning in the field and it's the guy who's not that far removed from like a 38 home run season he's still in a decent age decent park the struggles he's had recently have been priced into his adp i think he offers a tremendous potential um surplus value Jared Walsh isn't going to be great against left-handed pitching, but man, look at where he is in that lineup. He's hitting after Otani. He's hitting after Trout. He's going to hit in front of Anthony Rendon. I think Jared Walsh by accident is going to knock in like 110 runs and is priced really well. And, you know, Enrique Hernandez, Kiki Hernandez, Red Sox doesn't have that, that idea. I talked about Edmund concerned about if he'd keep the leadoff spot. Hernandez doesn't fit the profile as a perfect leadoff hitter, but, Here's the thing. They trust him hitting leadoff. He was fantastic in the playoffs. I, uh, this is a Salfino point, and I think Gene said this too. You know, We should put more value on the playoffs folding into the next season for a couple of different reasons. For one, the playoffs last a lot longer if the team is successful, so we're talking about more data, and the production is against really strong opposition. So if somebody excels in the playoffs, it leaves a good taste in the player's mouth. It leaves a good taste in the organization's mouth. The Red Sox obviously have one of the better lineups and one of the better hitting environments. Is Hernandez an ideal leadoff hitter? No. Do they like him in the leadoff spot? Yes. I think he's the cheapest 100 runs you can get. I think he might hit 25 home runs. He might end up covering a couple of different positions. I think he's been an ADP bargain all year. In the National League, who's a boon hitter? I mentioned Brian Reynolds, so I won't go into the explanation again, but I think he's a, a tremendous value. Brandon Nimmo is priced like he's going to get hurt and pretty much it's what he's done most of his career. But we're talking about a guy with an OBP career around 400. That Mets lineup is loaded. I think he sets up for a lot of profit. I don't know where Jeff McNeil's going to end up. I don't know if the Mets are going to play him, if the Mets are going to trade him, but he was just a 320 average, you know, waking out of bed in, until last season. I, I think the market is overcorrected on him. And I hope people realize how good Lane Thomas was in the final quarter of the season last year in that catbird slot right in front of Juan Soto. I think it was, what, 35-game trial as a leadoff hitter, 
253, 343, 487 with 29 runs, seven homers, 24 RBIs. I, I can't guarantee you he'll maintain that pace over a full season, but I know this, he's going to be batting leadoff on opening day and he's a very affordable hitter. I, he'd be like a great target to, to be the final player who fills out your outfield. Over to the mound. How about a Boone pitcher in the American league? You know, Cal Quantrill is, is going to be, I, I bet when you have these spots, there's going to be a bunch of people who, who are going to say, no, you don't want Cal Quantrill, right? He, his uh, ERA last year doesn't match his, component stats. And I, and I understand all that, but I think it's being priced into his ADP and he's being ignored so much that he can regress a fair amount and still keep an ERA in the mid to high threes and be useful. There's a lot of soft landings in the AL central. So I, I think where he's priced, he makes sense. If you don't get a frontline starter, I think Lucas Giolito is like that B plus a minus starter whose upside is like Cy Young contention. I'm very proactive on Giolito. I know Gene and I share a mind on John Means. I mean, he beat the park last year and now in Baltimore, and now they've made it more pitcher friendly. He's a fly ball pitcher. He's going to love those new dimensions. And I think Means has been pleasantly affordable all season. And talked about Jordan Romano earlier. I love trying to get that second tier closer who could maybe be a first tier return. And Romano pitched so well in the job last year. I think he starts with a very long leash. He's my he's my Kirby Yates Blake Trinan special this year. Uh, again, that second tier closer who I think busts into the first tier. And in the National League, uh, some Boone pitchers. So Stephen Matz has been you know just kind of a streamer, kind of okay for his career to this point. But the Cardinals have guessed right or been right so often when they've imported talent. Five Gold Glovers on that defense. Yadi Molina still you know a plus catcher, a, a catcher who I think adds value to the pitching staff. I. I like where he's priced, and I don't think anybody needs help um, with Walker Bueller being great, but I'm willing to pay for wins when the setup is, okay, a guy who I think is going to pitch a lot of innings, a guy who's young enough that I'm not worried about attrition or odometer, and a pitcher who's backed by a lineup that's just going to have five runs in their back pocket the moment they get to the park, and a lot of days they'll score, score more than that. Again, Walker Bueller's somebody everybody likes, but I think I'm, he's a guy I would try to elbow you out of the way and, and pay the extra buck for. Let's go to the Baines. Now these are guys who are being overdrafted or perhaps not as valuable as their ADP or auction price might suggest. Let's start in the American league again with a Bain hitter. Again, keep in mind what the exercise is here. I'm, I'm trying to find you a hitter who I think is going to not return his full value. So I'm going, I'm going to go big. I'm going to go with the Shohei Otani, who last I saw was the MVP and the best player in the American League. But it's just, it's obviously the regression is something we have to be concerned of. And also, if you draft in some leagues, Yahoo is like this. You can, you can own Otani, or I should say roster Otani, as a hitter or as a pitcher. You do not mix the things together. So if you draft Otani as a hitter, you still have to live with the fact that he's pitching every fifth or sixth day. And that brings extra injury risk. I'm just concerned that he's a little bit too fun for me, too sexy for me in the sense that there's going to be other people who want to be in on him. Maybe there's a lot of FOMO from last year if he didn't have Otani and what a great MVP bet he was paying off at like 40 or 50 to one. I, I'm going to, I'm going to shy away from him this year. I'm, I'm just concerned that he's priced where he needs to keep a majority of his offensive staff. I think it's going to be difficult for him to do. I generally don't get all jazzed up over the expensive rookies or, or young players coming to the league with, with Adley Rutschman. He's dinged up already. The Orioles obviously have reasons not to start him on the major league roster. I think they're going to jockey around with the service time. Unfortunately, that's still a problem in baseball. 
I think he's being priced like he's going to play maybe 120 games. I think he's going to play more like 50 or 70 or something like that. And that might be a really bad Orioles lineup. I'm probably going to be out on Bobby Witt Jr. too. He's going to be great someday. I just don't, I just think we see a lot more Jared Kelnicks than we do, you know, Juan Soto's in their first year. I, I'm just not somebody who proactively pays for the rookie year buzz. So uh, no Rutschman and Witt for me, unless I'm in a room where the price shockingly drops to something affordable. Into the reserve rounds, I guess, but that's not something likely to happen. Over to the National League, who's a hitter Bane? We're at a point now with Francisco Lindor where I don't know how much he wants to run, and he's given us a batting average um, in you know in the negatives, a negative batting average for the last couple of years. I know the Mets roster is loaded, but and I think they overpaid for him. It's not that his contract means anything, but I, I feel like he's going around earlier than he should. I. I don't know. I, 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 he's somebody who, again, I, I don't know. You might get like seven stolen bases. He could easily hit like 245. And he's being drafted in an area where, where people think he's a cornerstone. Now, it, it's easy to pick on Fernando Tatis because there's just been injury news that moved on him. But I thought, again, you know, my affection for Gene McCaffrey, I thought he was very wise to realize before the season that Tatis's shoulder also brought in risk. And so I'm just going to mention Tatis here as a as a kind of a catch-all where I try not to draft into injuries. I try not to be the injury optimist in my league, and I let somebody else be that. And um, if you see, if there's red ink on a player, unless you really get a great price, injuries are going to find you anyway. I'm just not going to draft players who have medical problems in, in spring training. I, I or you know, once it comes into timetables, weeks, months, somebody's going to go into your league and say, "Okay, this is how I win my league. I'm going to draft Tatis. He'll come back early because he says he's coming back early and he'll dominate the league for three or four months. Baseball's a lot harder than that. So I'm going to call Tatis a fade, but it's really just a way of me saying, don't be the injury optimist in your pool. Over to the mound again in the American League, who's a pitcher, Bane? Yeah, yeah again, Chris Sale, much like Tatis, you know, the, the news has moved now where I think everybody knows what the risk is. It's prohibitive and he's been moved down significantly, but I wasn't going to be in on sale anyway. I just, the, the point in his career arc concerns me. Also, maybe, maybe there's some vaccination issues where maybe he won't be able to pitch in Toronto or stuff like that. Although maybe you want to miss the Blue Jays anyway, but sales basically, I say this very sadly, I'm a Red Sox fan. He's undraftable for me. You know, Aroldis Chapman, he's their closer when he's healthy, but what are you going to get from him? He, he doesn't even get the 60 innings pitch, forget like 80 or 90 innings. He's going to pitch like 57 innings, and I try not to let this get into my fantasy play too much, but I'm a Red Sox fan. I don't mind rostering Yankees. If Glaber Torres hits a home run, it's not a big deal. But if I roster a Rollis Chapman, that means I have to root for the Yankees actually win a game. So I, I wouldn't mind ducking away from that. Um, but mostly with Chapman, it's just he's going to have a two- or three-week period where he can't find the plate, and he's going to have four or five weeks on the injury list because that's what happens with him every year. He's a very high-attrition guy, so – you're getting 58 innings with him. I feel like where he's priced, that is not a good return. And finally, a National League pitcher who's a Bane. Josh Hader's fantastic, but he's priced into an area that locks me out. I was in on Kyle Hendricks for several years, but he's always been a player who needed to do everything, every little thing right to make up for the fact that he doesn't have overwhelming stuff. And when he needs to live in the middle of the plate, he gets hammered. I always feel like players like that, when things go south for them. It just really collapses quickly. I Hendricks, we had a nice run. Uh, I've been bitten by him in recent years. It's at the point now where I don't think I'd even take him at the, at the discount price. I'm just going to let somebody else roster him. 
Scott Pianowski's Boons, Glaber Torres, Jared Walsh, Kike Hernandez, uh, Brian Reynolds, Brandon Nimmo, Jeff McNeil, and Lane Thomas on the pitcher side, Cal Quantrill, Lucas Giolito, John Means, and Jordan Romano, and National League Stephen Matson, Walker Bueller. To the Baines, Shoei Otani uh, and Adley Rutschman and Bobby Witt on the on the AL side. Francisco Lindor, Fernando Tatis on the NL side. Pitchers Chris Sale and Aroldis Chapman and his National League pitcher Baines, Josh Hader and Kyle Hendricks. Scott, this has been terrific. Thanks very much for helping us out. Uh, do tell our listeners where they can keep up with you. Always a pleasure doing this with you, Patrick. It's one of my favorite days of the year. You can follow me on Twitter at Scott underscore Pianowski, where I keep a regular flow of, of my links and recent articles. And uh, most of my work is at Yahoo Sports. So I've been very fortunate to be of the employee the last 13 years uh, where you can set up fancy baseball league if you want to. Um, I probably a little bit too late to get your fancy basketball, uh, fancy NCAA tournament league, but there's lots of fun stuff there. But uh, Twitter's basically my hub. Again, you catch me on Twitter and we can talk about whatever you want. You want to talk baseball, you want to talk hockey, you want to talk music, you want to talk movies, you want to show me a picture of your new dog. I'm in. Let's, uh, let's hang out. Scott, thanks very much for doing this. We'll talk again during the year. I look forward to it. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Scott Pianowski writes for Yahoo Sports. We'll take a quick break here, and then we're back with my extra innings comment. But first, let me tell you about HQ Basics, a new offering from BaseballHQ.com and our newest and simplest draft-only tool. I know many HQ Radio listeners already subscribe to the full BaseballHQ.com package, and thank you very much for doing that. I know you're getting good value. But you might not be ready to make that leap just yet, and we get that. But we still want you to get a feel for the Baseball HQ Advantage, so we've come up with HQ Basics. For just $9.95, you get a brand new weekly PDF cheat sheet fueled by our projection system for the game's most common formats, 5x5 rotisserie and points leagues using ESPN and Yahoo scoring. HQ Basics will be updated every Friday to get you ready for all your weekend drafts, and those updated rankings will account for all the latest player movement, all the injuries, and all the other news from spring training. And here's a sweetener. HQ Basics also comes with access to two subscriber-only articles every week to help you nail down those last critical decisions. There's one factor fluke player performance validation article and one playing time tomorrow roster forecasting article. And they'll also be updated every Friday through opening day. And if you like what you see, you might just find a coupon code for a discounted upgrade to a draft prep subscription. Draft season is finally and firmly underway, so you want to be prepared with a subscription to the time-tested and winning formulas of BaseballHQ.com. If you're looking for one thing to take into your standard 5x5 or points league draft, this is it. HQ Basics, powered by the proven methods of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here. Time now for our commentaries. The frequent flyer returns next week, so leading off and batting ninth, it's extra innings. My comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about my own boon and bane for 2022. A few weeks ago, just about when pitchers and catchers were supposed to be reporting, I took a week off work, and Lisa and I reported to our own version of training camp, a sunny resort about 20 minutes south of Cancun. While I was there, in between mango margaritas and icebergs, I was mulling over my coming baseball drafts and trying to figure out why I felt so out of it. 
Sure, the lockout was part of it, but after a few minutes of mulling, I realized that the problem was that my day job was kind of interfering with my baseball and fantasy baseball avocation. In short, my work had become my fantasy baseball bane. Now, I've had quite a few jobs, same as lots of people. When I was a kid, I pumped gas and mowed lawns. I joined the Army, worked at CKNW Radio in Vancouver for a while, still one of the best jobs I ever had, working in the creative department there. I moved to England and got a full-time job in a stereo and electronics store. I once sold a watch to Lulu of Two Sir With Love fame, and I sold a Walkman to Joanna Lumley, the star of the new Avengers TV show. She was very nice. Lulu, not so much, but I still love the song. Came back to Canada, went to university, got a journalism degree and a full-time job at the Regina Leader Post, a daily paper where I became the entertainment editor. I lasted 10 years at that, which seems to be my limit. I left newspapering for politics, became the speechwriter for the premier of my province. Then he retired and I moved into corporate communications. First 10 years with a big bank, most recently for a big telephone company. In between, I taught writing at a college. In hindsight, I realized I probably traded the creativity of radio and the freedom of journalism for the financial security of corporate work. In hindsight, not a great trade for me. I had started playing fantasy baseball in the meantime, and right around the time I left the newspaper, I started writing for Baseball HQ. Baseball writing gave me an outlet for writing and podcasting what I thought and what I could show. And that takes us to Cancun. Working for the phone company was sometimes interesting, and it paid well, but it was still to someone else's order, and that part of it was wearing me out. So during that Cancun vacation, I pretty much decided to call it a day. And that brings us to my boon for 2022. As of 5 p.m. today, Eastern Time, Friday, March the 18th, I retired. I'm no longer in salaried full-time employment, and I hope never to be again. For the first time in more than 40 years, I won't be in school somewhere, doing a job, or both. That would be a poor example of a boon if that was all there was to it, but the real boon, I think, is that I'll be able to devote more time to writing and potting about baseball and having more time with Lisa and with the dog and with my kids, all of those kind of things. And it all starts with Tout Wars, the American League-only draft, tomorrow morning. I don't think I could have timed it any better. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David, and I have my extra innings commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, March the 18th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number eight of the 2022 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Scott is a Hall of Fame level fantasy baseball analyst and, as you heard, covers other fantasy sports as well. Also, a really nice guy and a ton of fun to talk baseball with. I also want to thank our regular Market Watch news commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's always great to talk with Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy about the latest news, and it's one of the linchpins of Baseball HQ Radio through the season. I am Patrick Davitt, Extra Innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Man, there's a ton of really good information on there. Also, remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook. We have a Twitter feed, at Baseball HQ. And I have my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt. Feel free to join, and you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts or Pocket Cast, wherever you catch your pods. 
and leave Baseball HQ a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. We're also working on getting our show onto all the other podcast platforms, so if your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, please let us know about that. Or if there's a fantasy expert you'd like to hear on the show, or if you've got anything else on your mind about the show, email bhqradio at gmail.com and let us know. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with another Tuesday Tout Edition, and then next Friday, another Friday Full Edition, featuring bullpen talk with Baseball HQ columnist Doug Dennis and the long-awaited return of Alex Becky and the Frequent Flyer. So Doug and Alex and more next week on the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk to you next Tuesday, and for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.